Okay. Good afternoon or evening, everybody. Welcome. Uh, welcome to Exploring the Lord of the Rings, our special early day edition. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Well, a little after two o'clock in the afternoon uh, here on the East Coast. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, we are starting early today. We haven't done this in a while, for which I, I, I feel guilty now. I've been, I've been forgetting, as we wanted to do this uh, fairly regularly, uh, but we've lost track of it. Uh, because we want to we wanna do at least the occasional class in a, in a, in a Europe-friendly time. I know we're always broadcasting every week in the middle of the night uh, for our friends over in Europe. So uh, it's fun to do one at least every now and again. Uh, for the benefit of folks uh, who are several hours ahead of us here on the East Coast, uh, and I saw the comment from uh, that one uh, one of the uh, Californians. I think it was yes, it was uh, Art News who was saying that uh, it's nice to have class not in the middle of dinner time, which I I, I understand uh, uh, also there. So anyway, glad to be with you here today. Um, and uh, good to see uh, some of you guys. I'm, I'm seeing you in the Twitch chat, and I'm seeing you on Discord. So thanks for everybody who is able to join us here. And of course, I have the Twitter feed going here as well. Um, so anyway, uh, welcome. I just wanted to uh, uh, introduce uh, Estelle Ali, who is uh, uh, my host here this evening. And let me see uh, if I can uh, unmute you here on... Uh, uh, let me see. Uh, okay. I'm not quite sure how to do it. Okay. I think, yeah, I don't know how to change your permissions, actually. Oh, well. Um, that's awkward. Because uh, I wanted him to be able to talk later. Um Let's see. Hmm. Oh, sorry there, Ellie. I'm trying to sort that out, but I don't know how. Um, hey, Druidsfire, I don't know. I don't suppose you know how to give Estelle Ali permission to unmute here in the lower hall, do you? That would be handy. Uh, in Discord, I mean. Of course. Um, but, uh, yeah. I'll tell you what, let's, um, we'll work on that. And, uh, yeah. See what, um, see if we can get you unmuted in time for the field trip today. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, <laughs> so I don't know how to do this. So somebody figure out how to, uh, how to help me, uh, give somebody permission to, uh, to unmute in this channel. Cause I don't know how to do that. Anyway. All right. We'll sort that out. Um, all right. So let's, I'll just start that in that case. Um, so let's um uh let's let's get going. So tonight we are going to 
go back to Weathertop, right? You may remember that we were looking at Frodo staring off into the distance, and we were I was comparing that to the moment when Bilbo looks off into the distance, off thinking about Hobbiton, and we were thinking about the differences there, right? The kind of much more simple longing that Bilbo had in his mind when he was thinking back towards, uh, you know, thinking those Baggins-ish thoughts about going home. And, um, uh, and wishing he were back there sitting next to his fire with the kettle just beginning to sing. Uh, and Frodo's feelings, which are similar as he looks back longingly towards the Shire, but quite different as he thinks of himself, of course, of going into exile, of going there and not back again and never coming back again, as far as he can tell. And of course, it's particularly poignant that in that moment, right, as he's looking back and thinking about how the, sh- the shadow has come into his life and separated him from the Shire, what does he see but ring wraiths right on the road between him and the shire as he's you know his his sort of reverie looking off towards the shire even his sad reverie is interrupted by the actual physical presence uh of the ring wraiths on the road down below him as he's looking off in that direction so uh that's um the that that's the moment when we uh uh when we stopped last time and then everybody uh, flattening themselves on the top of the hill. So my goal tonight, my goal is to get as far as up to the poem. Not obviously we're not going to start the poem tonight. Way too much to talk about, but I want to see how close we can get to the beginning of the poem. Uh, I will have succeeded if we get all the way up to it, but that would be pretty ambitious. So we'll see. Uh, anyway, we'll get, we'll, we'll get as close as we can, but first I wanted to, uh, make some announcements first. I wanted to, uh, thank everybody who came out to Baymouth this past weekend. I just got back the day before yesterday, uh, from the San Francisco Bay area. Um, and that was, uh, that was really, really, uh, that was so awesome. I had such a great time. We had a wonderful conference. So good to meet so many of you. Uh, uh, really neat to uh, get to see. And I hope, you know, m- many of you uh, whom I met came up and told me your, the screen names that you're using here in the Twitch chat and on Discord so that I would know which, uh, which one you were from our, from, from our discussions. Got to meet several of, uh, of our regulars there. And that was, uh, that was, that was great fun. Um, so uh, uh, again, thanks for, thank, thanks for coming out. And it was wonderful, which makes me want to point out that we have a bunch more regional moots coming up. And I hope, I uh, really hope that uh, everybody who's listening, both who's here with me live today and who's listening asynchronously later on, uh, will make a point of being able to come out to the moot nearest you because we're uh, spreading them around as, as, as liberally as we can this year. Um, we are looking to do at least eight, uh, possibly even nine, but at least eight uh, regional moots this year. Um, so, uh, that's, there's going to be lots and lots of opportunities, uh, for you to, um, uh, for you to come out if you haven't yet, or even if you have, well, I want to see you again. Uh, so here are the ones that are coming up here, are the ones that are scheduled now. The next one is middle moot. Uh, that's for folks right smack in the middle of, uh, of America. Um, we're going to be at Kansas city, Missouri. Uh, so Kansas city, Missouri on October 6th. So I hope that you will uh, you will uh, uh, be able to to find us there. Let me show you the uh, where did it go? The, our page here. Oh, sorry, there it is. Okay. Um, so we've got a, we've got both the the links to our next two moots already here. Um, Middle moot, as I say, October sixth in Park Mill, Parkville, Missouri, right outside of Kansas City, um, and then on October twenty seventh, uh, LA moot. 
out in LA or near LA. Um, uh, fairly easy to get to from LA, as I understand the uh, location carefully chosen by Los Angeles natives uh, in order to uh, uh, make sure that I w- didn't make any foolish traffic recommendations uh, on the on the venue. Um, so anyway, that's that's uh, that's going to be that's going to be really cool. And I know uh, 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 what <laughs> Dev was not there. Um, I know that we were kind of. We started off closer to the Midwest, and we're sort of gravitating away from the Midwest and shifting down to Kansas City for Middlemoot this year. I'm working on that. Uh, it's uh, it's actually kind of funny how we're beginning to sort of orbit the like the the sort of the heart of the Midwest and not be in the middle of it. Um, but we're we're looking to uh, we're looking to amend that. We'll 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 do what we can uh, in in uh, in future times. But for now, uh, this is um, this is what we got. So as I say, uh, so two in two coming up in October. Middle Moot, October sixth. L.A. Moot, October twenty seventh, and then on November tenth, we have Magnolia Moot down in the southeast. So and that's going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, November tenth. As I said, uh, we don't have the information posted on that one yet, but we will very soon. In addition, we have. Um, uh, text moot, text moot part two. We had our first text moot last year and we have our second text moot coming up this year. And that's going to be on January 19th in Waco, Texas. Um, so we have, um, we have four scheduled moots scheduled and planned moots, uh, two of which have the registration open already. Uh, they're, uh, middle moot in Kansas city and LA moot. Both of them have registration open. So if you click on either one of these, Click an LA mood here. Just click the join this event button and you can register uh, right away. So um, anyhow, so that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what we have coming up. We have several other prospects uh, for the spring. Um, Definitely hoping to get out to Europe again, by the way, speaking of uh, being in a Europe friendly time, still working out the, you know, need to work out the details of that, but I definitely want to be, uh, uh, to be headed over there uh, again sometime this spring. Um, And then we're also looking at a couple other things, possibly Seattle, uh, possibly uh, New York City. Um, uh, So we're, we're working on a bunch of uh, things. Um, Anyway, so <laughs> Lapland moot, probably not. Uh, but um, uh, but we're uh, we're 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 working on it. Um, yeah. So there are there are lots and lots of of uh, of opportunities. As I say, we're looking to do eight or nine of them during this coming year, and then I'm hoping to add another uh, three or so for next year. Um, we are going to be. Uh, doing a New England moot. That's definitely something that we're planning now. I'm not sure of the date and when that's going to be. It might still be a little while, but uh, we're still we're still working on it. Anyway, just wanted to let you guys know because this has been such a fun opportunity. I can't even tell you. We've had four of them now, four of our regional moots uh, already since the beginning of last year. Uh, it has been so much fun. Uh, it's so cool to go out and connect with folks in a part of the country where we've never had an event before uh, and be able to... Uh, you know, put faces to names and, and get to hang out with folks. And the event itself is really, really cool. Baymoot was so fantastic. Um, so anyway, uh, we have, um, uh, we'll have, we'll have lots of opportunities. So anyway, um, thanks everybody for, uh, uh, again, thanks to the Baymoot folks for coming out. 
the other thing I wanted to draw your attention to quickly was a thing I scrolled past fast. Um, in honor, it was H.P. Lovecraft's birthday yesterday. So in honor of the birthday of H.P. Lovecraft, Signum is, uh, has put our anytime audit uh, uh, on sale for uh, for his for the course we have on him. And I don't know if you know about the anytime audit program, but it's pretty awesome. All of the courses in our course catalog, every pretty much every course we've ever, we've ever offered, um, is available for anytime audit. So if you missed it and you want to sit in on it, you basically just kind of you know can listen to the class lectures like an audio book you can watch them on your tablet both the video and the uh and the audio links are there all the course materials as well so you can see all the readings and so you can you can you can, you can do the readings and listen to the lectures and um it's really cool so basically any of the things out of our vault that you you know that you missed that we offered years ago and there are very very many um you know you can uh, sign up to audit anytime and it's really cheap it's 95 dollars uh, per class the tuition for that. And we have, of course, we're running a special right now on our HP Lovecraft class because it's, uh, it's because it's his birthday, right? Gotta, gotta, gotta give a discount on the man's birthday. So, uh, it's, uh, this is a, this is, and you know, Lovecraft is an experience, right? I mean, if you've not experienced Lovecraft, you should experience Lovecraft. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting. It really is. Um, so, and yes, uh, uh, Kate, you're absolutely right. Dr. Sturgis, Dr. Amy Sturgis was the lecturer, uh, in this course. She is fantastic. If you've never taken a course with Amy Sturgis, you owe it to yourself, uh, to, uh, to take that class. So anyway, that uh, definitely is something else I wanted to draw your attention to. Just uh, go to the Signum webpage and click on this link, uh, and it'll take you to the uh, the sign up form for the Anytime Audit. If you want to look at our other classes to you know see about maybe auditing something else, just go to our course catalog here, uh, and you can uh, under courses and chats, and you can see a list of all the courses we've ever done, and just uh, go through you know look look at each one, and um, you know so like our awesome Tolkien and Tradition class, for instance, and then you can just click through uh, to Anytime Audit, the Anytime Audit button down there. So, Verlin Flieger's Tolkien and Tradition class, that was so awesome. So glad that she did that for us. Okay, anyway, that's the story. Those are today's announcements. Exactly, Sam. Lovecraft's 128th birthday uh, was yesterday. That's pretty... See, he's past Bilbo now, so... Um, all right. Uh, let's... Uh, Let's move forward then. Let's uh, um, go back to the text. So the ring wraiths are closing in. Uh, as I said, we we just had Frodo looking off into the distance and seeing the ring wraiths down below. So what do you do when you're sitting around waiting for the ring wraiths to come hunt you down? Um, uh, and that's what we're going to see here tonight. All right, so when they get back down to the bottom of Weathertop, Sam and Peregrine had not been idle. They had explored the small dell and the surrounding slopes. Not far away, they found a spring of clear water in the hillside, and near it footprints, not more than a day or two old. In the dell itself, they found recent traces of a fire and other signs of a hasty camp. There were some fallen rocks on the edge of the dell, nearest to the hill. Behind them, Sam came upon a small store of firewood neatly stacked. I wonder if old Gandalf has been here, he said to Pippin. Whoever it was put this stuff here meant to come back, it seems. Strider was greatly interested in these discoveries. I wish I had waited and explored the ground down here myself, he said, hurrying off to the spring to examine the footprints. It is just as I feared, he said when he came back. Sam and Pippin have trampled the soft ground and the marks are spoilt or confused. Rangers have been here lately. It is they who left the firewood behind. But there are also several newer tracks that were not made by rangers. 
I cannot now be certain, but I think there were many booted feet. He paused and stood in anxious thought. Okay. Matt, I... You know, I would be interested in keeping track of when Pippin is called Peregrine. Uh, we did a little bit before uh, in my, I think, I'm trying to remember when that was. I think it was when I did my Mythgard Academy class on the Return of the King um, uh, that we um, uh, were talking about that. And um, I and somebody made actually a graph uh, of it, like the number of times uh, Pippin is uh, uh, is called Pippin, and, and when he's called Peregrine, uh, I've and I didn't. I remember when we were looking at the 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 data at the time; it didn't scream out obvious relevance. Um, but it feels like it should be relevant. You know, it feels like uh, something that could be or or perhaps should be important um and i'm not i'm not really sure what to make of that yet especially now in this case uh strider says sam and pippin have trampled the soft ground um so he's calling uh uh him pippin one even wonders if has he has pippin like has Strider probably knows that his real name is Peregrine, right? Probably, but I think he's in- introduced as Pippin. Um, you know, I'm not sure to what extent, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, is Strider even familiar with that name yet? Would even would even know to call him that? Uh, has he known him long enough to know what his real name is? Because <laughs> everybody calls him Pippin. Um, but it's definitely, I, 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 I would be interested to see as we go through if there's a correlation there. So, um, cause it's mostly Pippin by default, but we will definitely see if we notice any interesting correlations with when he's called, uh, Peregrine. It could, Matt, it could possibly be, uh, a, a, a signal of shift in narrators. That's, that's possible. I'm not sure. It seems to me more, uh, it seems to me more likely, uh, to be somebody who is, uh, uh to just to be, a shift in the sort of social context of the comment, right? Um, uh, rather than uh, a change uh, in narrators, but it's possible. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so, oh, I don't want to say hi to the guy on Twitter uh, from Turkey. See, in appreciating our live participation here in Europe friendly time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. So the, 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 yeah. So the question people were asking about what we're referring to here, the interesting thing is the narrator. Oops. Sorry. I'm just like trying to highlight things instead of moving my window around. Sam and Peregrine had not been idle. Um, and that is interesting. So Matt, I do find it especially intriguing when the narrator uses Peregrine, because that strikes me as particularly unusual, right? When it's used in dialogue, that's one thing. Um, and I do sort of suspect, um, I do sort of suspect that when it's used in dialogue, it tells us more about the sort of tone or context of that comment, right? Um, when they're going out of their way to call him by his full name, instead of calling him by his normal nickname, um, that, kind of has to mean something, right? But when the narrator does it, it's different. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, 
I'm not sure what to make of it. Especially since he, that is the narrator, shifts, right? He said to Pippin, we get right down in the next paragraph. So there doesn't really seem to be any obvious sense to that, right? It might just be for variety, an occasional reminder, right? Um, but yeah, and Belongsmond, you're right uh, to see, uh, for us to also do a similar comparison between Mary and Mariotic and Sam and Samwise, right? Um, and again, here especially in the narrator's voice, not in dialogue. I don't know. Um, yeah, Matt is wondering if it correlates with the with uh, Findigil, the king's writer, right? Because we know that the manuscript received much annotation in Gondor, and since Pippin is so much better known in Gondor, uh, one could imagine, right, a scribe who is copying the Red Book going out of his way to refer to him as Peregrine, right? Which is probably how the scribe would think of him, uh, Peregrine of the Shire. So um, uh, that is interesting. Okay, so here's the thing I would like to see. Uh, if I were trying to come up with a data set, here's the data set I would want. Again, excluding dialogue, which is tricky, right? So I would want to exclude the names used in dialogue for now. That That's a different question and interesting on itself. But for this question, the number of times the names Sam, Samwise, Pippin, Peregrine, Mary, Mariotic, all six of those names, the number of times those names are used by the narrator, not in dialogue, and what is the what's the relative percentage of those? So what percentage of the time the, you know, the Took character is referred to, is he called Pippin versus Peregrine, and the percentages of Sam versus Samwise and Marriott versus Mariotic, again, in the voice of the narrator, um, to see if it's true, Matt. Because I would think if, 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 the, if Findigil King's writer is responsible for that, right, then you'd think that it would come up more with Peregrine, right? That Mary would be Mariotic and Sam would be Samwise a smaller percentage of the time than Pippin would be Peregrine, right? But it would be interesting to see. Okay, so that's, that's I would be interested in seeing that data set if anybody is interested in, uh, uh, in, in delving for that. It would be tricky. You'd have to do a bunch of it by hand, right, to exclude all the, uh, the, the examples in dialogue. But anyway, okay, cool. Great question. That's, that's, uh, that's really... That's really interesting. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's keep let's let's keep going. What else was I want to talk about with this? So, trying to recreate what has happened until Strider speaks his piece about Rangers, right? Um, you know, when he says Rangers have been here have been here lately. In context, um, it sounds like. He doesn't mean that in response to... He's not saying that he saw that by the stream, right? I take uh, Sam and Pippin have trampled the soft ground and the marks are spoiled or confused to mean that he cannot draw any conclusions based on the, the ground by the, by, the, by, the, by the pool, right? By the well. Um, but he... Uh, so when he says rangers have been here lately, he seems to be concluding that from seeing the firewood, right? It is they who left the firewood behind. He sounds very confident about that, right? He doesn't, you know, we've seen him be fairly diffident 
most of the time, right? When making his observations. I mean, just remember what we were talking about last week um, with when he was up on top of Weathertop and interpreting the signs that he saw there, right? He seems quite confident in these signs. And that, by the way, is the number one reason why I personally disbelieve the idea that the runes that, you know, sort of the, the indicators that Gandalf has written on the rock here are some kind of accepted rune shorthand that Aragorn knows how to interpret, right? I don't believe that. And the reason I don't believe that is that Aragorn does not speak like somebody who is reading a plain message in a, in a, in a language or a, you know, a, a, a cipher or something that he understands. Um, he speaks as someone who is interpreting, right? Who is making his best guess at what sim- signs and symbols that he has come across probably mean. Um, and that, that that's very different from saying like, oh yeah, no, I, I know this code. This is what that means, right? Um, he's, he's diffident. Um, and here he's not diffident, which leads me to suspect that he recognizes that like the wood, the location, the way that, I don't know what it is, the way that it's packed, the way that it's concealed, the place that it's concealed. Is this an accepted, like common ranger hiding spot for firewood? Do rangers, when they come through here, often hide firewood in that particular spot? Uh, so that, you know, he, um, he, you know, as soon as he sees firewood there, he's like, oh yeah, rangers, right? Um, because he doesn't even seem to open up the possibility that it's Gandalf, which is what it sounds like when we hear the description, right? That first paragraph, um, uh, footprints not more than a day or two old, uh, recent traces of a fire, other signs of a hasty camp, some fallen rocks on the edge of the dell nearest to the hill, right? Both of those, all of those things, I'm immediately thinking about Gandalf, right? We just saw evidence that he was up on the hill, right? So what do we... So the idea that he had camped here before going up onto Weathertop makes some sense, right? So that they would see evidence of his camp, um, recent traces of a fire in the fire pit, um, uh, that there would be footprints, you know, that he would have gotten water. Um, even the fallen rocks on the edge of the dell nearest to the hill is interesting, right? Did that, does that suggest that he came down that hill in a hurry, right? From, so you can imagine him coming from Weathertop down into the dell to run, right? Did he leave his horse down here? Presumably he would have left his horse. Uh, uh, you know, Ranger and the Ranger, you know, Mr. Ranger Strider and, uh, and Frodo and Mary seem to have left their horses right with Pippin and Sam down at the bottom of the hill. So, um, excuse me, Pippin or Sam and Peregrine, I should say. Um, so presumably Gandalf would have done so too. I don't think he would have dragged his horse all the way up to the top of Weathertop. So presumably he left his horse tied down here and, uh, would have come after he escaped from the Black Riders would have come down the side of the hill in rather a hurry right and uh picked up his horse and taken off so uh you know i am um, that's my temptation there but strider doesn't seem to be thinking about that at all right uh well i don't know about it all but he immediately says rangers have been here lately it is they who left the firewood behind he says confidently but there are also several newer tracks that were not made by rangers. Um, at least one set was made only a day or two ago by heavy boots. Is that Gandalf? That could very well be Gandalf. At least one, he says. I cannot now be certain, but I think there were many booted feet, which seems likely, right? Uh, that So does this, this show his pursuit 
by the ring wraiths now at that point. Um, and notice he doesn't, again, notice how he starts being diffident again right away, right? Um, Strider is pretty cautious about committing himself to an interpretation of facts. Um, so notice these trends that we're observing in sort of how Strider operates, right? A lot of the time when he is making an interpretation, when he's just putting facts together and trying to guess at what, ha what happened, he tends to not speak very confidently. He, he tends to not say, okay, I'm sure this is what must have happened, right? He leaves it very open uh, and qualifies it a lot. Things like, I cannot now be certain, but, right? Um, even when we know he has great skill, um, but he doesn't, um, he doesn't, I don't know, trade on that, right? He doesn't uh, uh, make big assertions based on his skill. Others will speak very confidently about his skill. He does not speak very confidently um, about his skill. So I think that that's, that's a really important thing, right? Um, uh, yeah. Oh, hey, I uh, see that note there uh, from, I don't, I can't, Sorry, my phone's far away. I can't see uh, your name very well. Uh, I, I, so I saw that note on Twitter. Uh, send me an email about that or a private message on Twitter, and, uh, and, and, and we'll see if we can talk more about that. So, yeah, Allegretta, it does seem to me to be... Uh, I think it's more about a lack of arrogance than a lack of dishonesty. It's, it's not about dishonesty. It's about overconfidence, right? Um, asserting himself too clearly. We saw even in decision-making he was somewhat, well, he was cautious. He was sort of somewhat diffident, right? That is, he, um, he was thinking about, um, you know, when he's thinking through whether or not they should go to Weathertop, right? And, and, and talking about this stuff with Frodo, he was kind of leaving it open, asking for their advice. You know, he was, uh, you know, he did say what he, in the end, whether he thought they should do, but he did not just, you know, sort of strike out and say, I'm sure this is the right thing to do. But again, we do see sometimes when he speaks differently. That's why the finding of the firewood seems to me interesting. And I, I kind of, it's hard for me not to put that in a different category because he's not being at all different about that. He speaks very confidently. Rangers have been here lately. It is they who left the firewood behind. If that's how he talked all the time, you know, if he were always that confident about his conclusions, um, that would be one thing, but he's not. Aragorn does not talk like Sherlock Holmes, right? Sherlock Holmes talks like he knows exactly what happened and he has no doubts about his conclusions, right? Um, unless he, you know, has real reason to think that he hasn't gotten all the data yet or something. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, he's, 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 he's remarkably careful about that. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing to watch, uh, an interesting thing, especially as we will we'll begin to see uh, some trends, some more trends developing in Aragorn's sort of analysis and decision making, uh, as we'll see as we move through. Um, yeah, it is possible. Um, uh, Ali says, uh, I think it might be because he was with the hobbits and maybe he hasn't had interactions with them before and is treading cautiously. If he was alone, he might be more confident. Um, after all, he tracked down Gollum. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't necessarily think that we need to take this as a sign of Aragorn actually having like confidence problems, right? Um, of him not... Um, 
not believing in his own abilities, right? I, I don't think we have a, a an Aragorn here who's like, you know, racked with self-doubt. That seems to me not, um, well, that reading, I think, certainly doesn't seem to be necessary at this time. Uh, that would be a pretty strong reading. I don't think we have enough to support a reading that uh, sort of radical, right? What we do see is caution, which could just as well be humility, right? Um, Aragorn just not going beyond the facts, right? He is saying, I think that there were many booted feet, right? He can't prove it. He's not 100% sure. Um, so he's not going to say more than what he knows, you know, more than what he's sure of. Um, so, yeah. Um, which, again, suggests to me that he's super sure about the firewood uh, for some reason. Anyway, cool. Um, Nick is wondering if it could be his anxiety based on what he thinks has happened to Gandalf. Yeah, remember, I'm pretty convinced now, uh, after our recent classes, that his desire to try to get more information about what happened to Gandalf um, is one of the things that has really driven him to come to Weathertop in the first place. I think that he his, his excitement to see, and that seemed to me confirmed, uh, in last week's reading, because he finally gets up to the top and he does, you know, we do look at the view, right? We do spend some time looking at the view, but Aragorn doesn't spend that much time looking at the view, right? Aragorn spends time looking at the ground on top of the hill. That's the view that he's come to see is the close up view of what happened here on the top of the hill. Because he knows something did. He's known that for a couple of days, ever since he saw the flashes of light in the darkness. Um, and now he wants to try and figure it out, such that he chides himself um, for being so anxious about tidings for Gandalf that he forgot himself, right? And has allowed them to stand at the top of the hill where they could be seen from a distance. Um, so, uh, uh, so, yeah. Oh, yes, and Natish, absolutely, we are on Brandywine, and uh, we will be doing our field trip afterwards. Yep. Still happening. Okay. Um, yes, Nick, or perhaps uh, uh, what happened to whoever was fighting Gandalf. Uh, this is interesting, right? Because, you know, we were talking about how, sure, he it's useful for him to know a little bit more about where the enemy is, right? But I was saying that that doesn't actually make much sense when it comes to standing up on the hilltop and looking around. They do, in fact, see some ringwraiths from the top of the hill, but that hardly that was kind of lucky, right? Uh, you know, if uh, luck you call it. But it's it's not like he could really have expected that a view of the countryside from the top of the hill was going to show up the ring wraiths to them, necessarily. And even still, it only shows up five. Uh, the ones that they see that happen to be down there on the road right below them when they're up at the top. However, um, like I said, it's not like that was a high-yield option for scouting the enemy when the enemy is a handful of shadowy creatures who could be in the woods at any time, right? And not visible from the top of the hill. However, the other thing, uh, what's more, much more important, since he can be fairly confident that they were there on top of Weathertop, um, then he can learn much more. Did they win? Did they lose? Um, you know, uh, what happened? Did they chase Gandalf away? Did they carry Gandalf away? Those things, answers to those questions, which he might be able to answer after he looks at the hill, would give him a good deal more information about what they, the hobbits, could very likely uh, uh, expect once they um, uh, once they leave Weathertop again. 
Um, notice also, by the way, Strider chiding himself. He doesn't yell at the hobbits, right? He doesn't blame Sam and Pippin for messing up the footprints, even though, uh, you know, perhaps it would have been better for them to have uh, um, uh, sort of been a little bit more careful when they noticed that there were uh, footprints not more than a day or two old. Those are presumably their observations that we're getting in that first paragraph, right? Um, but they, um, they, they don't, but he doesn't yell at them, right? Instead, he chides himself. Um, I wish I had waited and explored the ground down here myself, right? Once again, he thinks he's made a mistake, right? Um, Aragorn does not seem to think much of most of his decisions after the fact. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Belongsmond is wondering if uh, uh, Aragorn might be starting to feel the, 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 the dread as the Nazgûr in the area. Possibly. Possibly. Um, but I think probably not yet. Anyway, let's keep looking here. Okay. Each of the hobbits saw in his mind a vision of the cloaked and booted riders. If the horsemen had already found the dell, the sooner Strider led them somewhere else, the better. Sam viewed the hollow with great dislike, now that he had heard news of their enemies on the road only a few miles away. Hadn't we better clear out quick, Mr. Strider? he asked impatiently. It's getting late, and I don't like this hole. It makes my heart sink somehow. Yes, we must certainly decide what to do at once, answered Strider, looking up and considering the time and the weather. Well, Sam, he said at last, I do not like this place either, but I cannot think of anywhere better that we could reach before nightfall. At least we are out of sight for the moment, and if we moved, we should be much more likely to be seen by spies. All we could do would be to go right out of our way back north on this side of the line of hills, where the land is all much the same as it is here. The road is watched, but we should have to cross it if we tried to take cover in the thickets away to the south. On the north side of the road, beyond the hills, the country is bare and flat for miles. Okay. Um. So... Sam and Strider's interactions, right? Before we think about uh, uh, Strider's sort of particular advice here. Um, if we... Um, uh, look at how Sam addresses Strider here now, right? Um, I really like how he calls him Mr. Strider, right? Uh that's kind of particularly fun because he introduced himself as Strider explicitly with that as a pseudonym. Well, not exactly pseudonym, not like a pseudonym he's taken for himself. You know, he says, you know, around here I am called Strider, right? It's obvious that's not his real name. We know his real name. His real name is Aragorn. It was revealed uh, by him and it was revealed by Gandalf in the letter, right? So, they know his real name. They keep calling him Strider. And Sam calls him Mr. Strider, um, which is interesting because that's a that's a sign of respect. Right. Um, uh, you know, he calls him he calls him Mr. Does is he considering Strider to be what like higher social class than he is himself, right? He's calling him Mr. Strider, like he calls Frodo, Mr. Frodo, right? Um, and sometimes does call 
uh, Pippin, Mr. Pippin, right? We've seen that too. Um, when Sam uses that, um, you know, whereas like, for instance, you will not see him calling Hob Hayward, Mr. Right. Um, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Uh, so he's, Sam does not think he's speaking to his peer when he's talking to Aragorn. Right. Um, uh, yeah, not a cat exactly. He is uh, uh, according Strider more courtesy than he would Ted Sandyman for sure, absolutely. Um, and you know, Kate is wondering if this is the first sign of respect from Sam, and and it seems to be. Um, you know, why? What prompted it? Is there something that you know? Is there something in particular? you know, around here that has changed. Um, you know, Kate's wondering if it could be a reaction to his skill in the Dell. Possibly. Possibly. Um, but, I don't know. Um, the, the sense that I have here um, yeah, Wolfric, that's exactly what I was about to say. Um, not so much respect of, of, of class, uh, but acknowledging his position as their guide and thus in, to some extent in a position of authority over them. Yeah. Um, Wolfric, that's exactly what I was about to say. When you look at the context of that, um, of that sentence or the sentence that Sam has just said, hadn't we better clear out quick, Mr. Strider, right? He's asking, right? He's not saying, well, I think we, we better get out of here. Right? He's not just offering his own opinion. He is asking and he's deferring to Strider's opinion on this because Strider knows the land better. Strider is their guide, right? Hadn't we better? Now, notice he doesn't just ask it as an open question. Um, would it be a good idea for us to clear out quick, Mr. Strider? <laughs> right? He doesn't just offer it as a, you know, a, 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 a question which could expect the, um, the answer yes or no equally. Right. Um, instead, he asks the question um, negatively, right? Meaning implying the answer is yes. Hadn't we better clean out quick? Yes, we had better clean out quick, hadn't we? Right. So he's asking the question forcefully in that way, as if it, there's only one obvious answer. Right. And yet he's still asking it as a question. He's not just stating his opinion. He's not telling Strider what to do. He is still deferring to Strider as their guide. Right. And to Strider's superior knowledge. So in that context, um, Wolfrag, that's just what I was thinking. You kind of think that it's sort of ingrained in 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 Sam that when someone else is in that kind of position of sort of leadership, even temporary leadership uh, over him, um, and in particular when it's somebody who is a stranger that he doesn't, you know, he's not on familiar terms with, uh, that he would call a mister by default. Um, good, Matt. Oh, that's excellent. Matt was recalling that he called him Mr. Strider back in Bree, but in a very different context. Mr. Strider may have an honest reason for spying and eavesdropping, but if so, I should advise him to explain it. You see, Matt, of course, that is sarcastic, right? When he calls him Mr. Strider there, he is showing him disrespect, essentially, right? Um, disrespect might be slightly strong, but he's being, he's being sarcastic there, right? Um, uh, Strider has shown himself to be uh, uh, a spy and an eavesdropper, right? By his own account there, right? Uh, and so referring to this 
questionable looking stranger who has just admitted that he was spying on them and eavesdropping from the bushes while they were talking to Tom Bombadil, um, calling him Mr. Right. Uh, is that's more than just kind of backhanded. Right. Um, but yeah, Kate, I agree already. Lots of things have changed. Right. I think that if we try to see Sam as being, like still just as hostile to to Strider now as he was, you know, back at the uh, at the Prancing Pony originally, right? I think that's that's doing Sam an injustice. Um, he had he was right about not they're not sleeping in their rooms at Bree Kate, as you say, and he has gotten them through the wild so far. Um, he's definitely living up to his side of the deal, and I'm sure that Sam uh, respects his familiarity with the countryside. Remember, that's Sam, right? Um, the statement about, you know, Sam knew the land well within 20 miles of Hobbiton, but that was the limit of his geography. Remember that sentence? Um, often when we read that sentence, the stress that we put is just on the latter part, right? Um, our, our take home from that sentence is often Sam only knows the land well within 20 miles of Hobbiton, right? He's never been outside. He's never been more than 20 miles away from Hobbiton. And that's true. That is an important element of that sentence. But the first half of the sentence is important, too. And you may remember that that sentence comes up in Three is Company when it's Sam who's saying there's a there's a fir wood up next to the road up here. Right. That would shelter us. So we, that, that's where we can stop. He's the one who's their guide within 20 miles of Hobbiton. He knows the land really well. And while they're there on that first night, he's their guide. And he's the one who is suggesting the likeliest camping spot and things like that. So. Obviously, we are way beyond Sam's comfortable radius, so he doesn't serve himself as a guide. And yet, he does seem to respect that, right? He seems to respect that in Strider. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. I, so I, I think that that's, in a sense, it's something that he and Strider have in common, right? Just on very, very different scales, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, and and Ali, absolutely. Uh, it's not just Sam, right? All of them are further now. All four of the hobbits are, are now further away from home than they've ever been, and all of them are relying on Strider. And so Sam's uh, voicing of that is more uh, uh, is more. Uh, you know, he he's 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 the one who voices it openly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I know there's going to be Frodo's testimony later on will suggest that he thinks that Sam was still skeptical. But keep in mind, that's Frodo's interpretation, right? Um, and even when Frodo says that, he's going to say that uh, a little bit whimsically, right? So let's not let's let's not worry about that too much. Let's instead look at what we see uh, from here. And that contrast that Matt was making about the look at those two instances in which Sam calls him Mr. Strider. Right. The first one, clearly sarcastically in mockery. Right. Um, or at least in serious question. The second time, his respect seems genuine. He seems to mean it when he calls him Mr. Strider now. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> Belongs Mong points out that Sam could have rewritten it. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I am pretty resistant to the idea that Sam's going to rewrite anything that Frodo wrote in order to make himself, Sam, look better, right? I have, I have a really hard time. Uh, it's going to take some, uh, it's going to take some, some, some uh, convincing for me to be convinced of that. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, 
Yeah, good. Uh, okay, so let's... Yeah, uh, Ethelot, I agree about um, the anxiety, right, as the Nazgul are coming closer. And looking at Strider's reaction to that, I do think he's being very careful here. Um, notice, and Kate, you were talking about this before, and I forget who it was, I apologize. Somebody on the discussion boards last week uh, was talking about they like how they really appreciate how Strider treats Sam. Right. And I agree. I think that's very interesting. Um, yes, we must certainly decide what to do at once. And notice the we, right. He's not asserting authority. Right. Um, like, yes, hang on a moment and I'll tell you what to do in a second. Right. He's, he's, you know, we must decide. He says he's not, uh, he's not claiming sole leadership of this expedition. And then he addresses Sam, right? Well, Sam, I do not like this place either but I cannot think of anywhere better that we could reach before nightfall. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, really good point, Matt. Matt points out that it's worth noticing that both of the times that we were just looking at that Sam calls Strider, Mr. Strider, he's challenging him both times, right? The first time, uh, uh, a, a strong advice. And the second time when he's impatient, um, Yes. Yeah. No, ex- the parallelism of that makes it even stronger. Right. Um, again, the, 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 the difference in the tone becomes much more noticeable when both times he's um, he's challenging him, but in a very, very different way. Right. Yeah, I think that's I, th- I think it's really I think it's really good. Anyway, Strider chooses to show Sam respect. Right. He responds back to Sam. I don't like this place either, right? I affirm what you say. He doesn't tell him, oh, don't be ridiculous, Sam, or, oh, Sam, you're so inexperienced, you have no idea, right? This is a much better spot than it seems like to you, right? Trust me, I'm the one who knows. That's um, not at all, not at all uh, how Strider talks to him. He could, but he doesn't. Um, and I do think that that is important. Um, he treats Sam, he does treat Sam with respect. He seems to understand Sam's value, right? The ways in which when Sam is speaking up, um, he's speaking up on behalf of his master, right? He is, he is, uh, he is defending Frodo, uh, and Strider seems to get that. But of course, we're skipping there for a second what Sam actually says, apart from hadn't we better clear out quick, Mr. Strider right? It is getting late and I don't like this hole. He is now characterizing this Dell, which seemed fairly promising, right? Beforehand. Um, uh, that is, you know, if you, whoops, sorry, too fast. If you look back at this first paragraph at this first description of the camp and all the different traces and things that sounds snug and cozy and nice, nobody seems to hate it, right? Uh, there at the beginning. Um, now he's calling it a hole, Right, which is already a pretty severe condemnation of it. It makes my heart sink somehow, says Sam. Um, is that because the ring rates are closing in? I don't think they're close enough to make Sam's heart sink exactly. Is it possible that Sam has some kind of premonition? That seems possible, right? Does Sam have some, somehow, some kind of inkling or premonition of what's going to happen here? Right. I mean, this night, his master is going to be wounded and the wounding of his master this night is going to be a lifelong suffering for his master. Right. One of the wounds that can never be fully healed in this world is going to happen to Frodo this evening. Um, Are we being told is Sam revealing the fact that somehow and in some sense, 
knowledge of that is being given to him, right? That he's getting some kind of inclination. I don't know. I mean, that seems like it might be reading too much into that line. Um, that, you know, the mere proximity of the Black Riders, to which perhaps Sam is a little bit more sensitive than the others, um, is, um, is, is, yeah, I mean, it, that, that, that might be a simpler explanation for it. Um, it's just the way that he says it, right? It makes my heart sink somehow. Um, we know we're going to see his heart sink when he looks at Frodo being wounded, right? Um, and yet, uh, Cecilia, yes, Cecilia was saying, looking at from, from the text, Adele doesn't seem that bad, right? Strider says he doesn't like it either. Um, yeah, exactly. There's no reason not to like it. He, Strider, has just given reasons why it's better, right? Or he's just giving reasons why it's better, right? Um, yeah, they might know that we're here, but then again, there's nowhere that's better that's safer than this uh, anywhere around. And we have a better chance of remaining hidden if we stay here than if we leave and go walking around. Um, so, um, yeah. Now, Bricktails, you're right that if enemies are nearby, a hole, you know, so it's called a hole because it's a, it's a dell, right? It's a, it's a steep-sided, grassy dell. Uh, so it's a little, tiny little valley, right, that they're in. Um, it is true that it's hardly defensible, Um as you've already given up the high ground and could be surrounded easily. Yeah, that's true. So it's concealment primarily that their strider is thinking of, right? Um, uh, that they're more likely to remain hidden here in this dell. That's it. It seems to be his rationale, right? At least we are out of sight for the moment. He says, um, and if we moved, we should be much more likely to be seen by spies. Um, I don't know who the spies are, right? Uh, remember, he suggested that even some birds uh, uh, might be acting as spies. Um, uh, yeah, I am. I am not convinced officially. So, I know several of you are talking about the proximity of the ring rates. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that. Um, I'm not convinced that the proximity of the Nazgul are yet, is yet affecting their spirits to this extent. Um, and I say that because the proximity of the ringwraith seems to work. I mean, I don't know if it falls off as inverse distance squared or what, but uh, I, it, it doesn't seem to work at really long range, right? Um, uh, based on what we've seen anyway, I mean... They didn't feel this kind of oppression on their spirits in the Prancing Pony when the Nazgul was out in the yard, right? Um, so I tend not to think that it's the proximity of the Black Riders. I think that we will see. I mean, I know that we will see the Black Riders approaching uh, as we move forward. I think we'll see evidence that they're closing in and getting closer. But I don't think they are yet. Um, they... The three of them just came down the hill from the top of Weathertop, and when they saw them, they were far away. Right? They're visible as little specks, not just because they're high up on the hill on the hill top, but because they were far away. The ring raids were far away down the road, off towards Bree. Uh, remember where it said they were they were located, right? The ring raids, that is, where the ring raids were located, was down uh, um 
down on the out towards uh, in the Breward direction all, along the road. Um. Anyway, yeah. Um. Now I agree, Wolfreg. Sam's use of the word "hole" is entirely pejorative. It's not just descriptive in that they're in a you know a little dell like a bowl. Um. Sam doesn't seem to like holes, which is interesting for a hobbit, right? But I guess it's it's uh you know uh um. He must be referring to nasty, dirty holes filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, right? And who could blame him for not liking those? Um, um, but yeah, that is an interesting but consistent piece of Sam diction, right? Um, he will, Wolfric, as you point out, call Moria a darksome hole. Absolutely. Okay, so um, I don't think, as I say, I don't think the ring rates are close enough yet uh, to cause this. I think we'll see that. But I think that we will, uh, uh, I I don't think that we're there yet. That's why I am inclined to think that, because I think we do get evidence of when the Nazgul start to close in enough to actually start affecting the spirits of the hobbits while they're there inside the Dell. And I don't think we've gotten there yet. Um, But uh, that's, again, another reason why I'm inclined to think that Sam uh, is being given some kind of insight about what's going to happen here. Um, okay. Uh, let's see what else was something else I was going to say about this. Um, oh, his suggestion about their movements. Again, what he's describing here is concealment. Um, if they move, they're very likely to be seen right by spies to go north, all they'd have, to, all they do is just retrace their steps the way they came down with those rocks screening them from Weathertop, right? They could go back up that path, but as they saw, right, there's no place that's safer than the spot that they're in. If they go south, they'd have to cross the road, and then they'd be very visible. Um, and if they keep going uh, uh, off to the, uh, you know, on the north side of the road beyond the hills the country's barren flat for miles, right? So again, they would show up. So he seems to be, concealment seems to be his primary reason for wanting to stay in the Dell. Okay. Somebody was asking whether the uh, ring rates can see. Nick was asking that. Glad you're asking that, Nick. Mary wants to know too. Can the riders see? Asked Mary. I mean, they usually have their have used their noses rather than their eyes, smelling for us, if smelling is the right word, at least in the daylight. But you made us lie down flat when you saw them down below, and now you talk of being seen if we move. I was too careless on the hilltop, answered Strider. I was very anxious for some sign of Gandalf, but it was a mistake for three of us to go up and stand there so long, for the black horses can see. And the riders can use men and other creatures as spies, as we found at Bree. They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys. And in the dark, they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are most to be feared. And at all times, they smell of the blood of living things, desiring it and hating it. Senses, too, there are other than sight or smell. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them. They feel ours more keenly. 
Also, he added, and his voice sank to a whisper, the ring draws them. Okay. Um, Mary's question is based on their observations, right? And remember, Mary had not seen any bike riders or made any observations himself, right? But he's the one who has had the most recent run-in with them uh, there when he was saved by the heroic knob. Um, so they don't seem to have... They seem to have used their noses rather than their eyes. <coughs> Excuse me, he says. Um... So, first let's look at his answer about the Nazgul themselves, right? Um, they themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, uh, which only the noon sun destroys. Now, think about that for a second. Um, what is... Um, what does that make you think of? Their... So, uh, their their forms, our forms, our shapes, are their bodies. Their bodies cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys. Remind you of anything? Yes, fourth dauntless. Exactly. Someone wearing the ring casts a shadow at noon. Remember, this happens with Bilbo, right? He's got to be careful about this because. That one of the things that can give him away in The Hobbit when he's wearing the ring is that the noonday sun will show up a shadow, right? It can be kind of thin and wobbly, but it a shadow is visible. Um, so when Bilbo is wearing, is invisible because he's wearing the ring in The Hobbit, right? The noonday sun will cast a shadow from his body, which is not visible, Right? Uh, here in our world. We, in our world here, will see a shadow of him um, when he's wearing the ring. The ring wraiths, when they are looking at our world, they don't see it, right? It's invisible to them, in a sense, right? They're invisible, meaning they can't see it, right? Um, our regular world is invisible to them, except that our bodies cast shadows that they can see. Except in this case, the noon sun, rather than creating the shadow, abolishes it. Right? So notice we have an almost exact reversal of those two things. Bilbo, while wearing the ring, right, and therefore sort of crossing over into the wraith world, is not visible to our mortal eyes within the context of our mortal world. Right? But there's a shadow. The sun makes a shadow. The wraiths live full-time over in that world that the ring takes you into, right? They also make a shadow, right? Um, they don't like the noon sun much, uh, and, th and they also make a shadow. You can see a shadow when you look at them, right? Their forms make shadows in our eyes, too, just as ours make shadows in their eyes as well, right? Um, they can see us but they can see us in shadows, right? Because just as when we're looking at... So Bilbo's wearing the ring, we're looking at him, right? He's not fully in the same world that we're in, right? His body is in the Wraith world. That's why it's invisible, kind of, sort of. It's more complicated than that, but... Um, 
yeah, Fourth Dollar says, do we know that the raids cast shadows rather than their clothes doing it? It's hard. I think so, because... Um... Yeah, Sam talks about seeing vague, shadowy shapes. Um, I don't think it's just clothes. I don't think that they are totally invisible. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think they're in. Like, if you saw them, they would look like just a cloak hanging there over absolutely nothing. There seems to be a shadow there. Allegret is wondering if they can see themselves in the mirror. Um, that's a great question. I've no, I probably, I would think they could see themselves. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Maelstrom is asking about the, why the noonday sun, right? Other than just the sort of, sort of obvious symbolism of it, right? Uh, when the day is brightest and fullest, uh, then, uh, you know, the, 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 the darkness and the shadow is banished. Um, except when you're wearing the ring, it's created, right? It is, as Kate was saying earlier on, Kate Neville was saying, it's like a, it's like a, a, a negative image, right? Um, of what happens on the other side, right? Um, yeah. Well, Let's um let's keep an eye out for that. Let's keep an eye out for more descriptions of the uh uh let's keep an eye out for more descri- descriptions of the ring wraiths to, to see if they're absolutely invisible or if they're shadowy at all. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Okay. So that's the site question. In the dark, they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. So again, that's the, what corresponds to the noon, right? They can see some other... There are other things that are visible to them at night. And I don't think this just means they have excellent night vision, right? It's not just that. They see things. Um, signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are most to be feared, right? Yes, I do think it means they have better night vision than we do. But it's not just about comparative night vision, I think. I think that they see more things, right? That there are things that are visible to them, things that are connected to the Wraith world, perhaps in some sense, that we don't see, that we walk around, you know, the world that we are surrounded by might look different, right? Um, yeah, it's it, perhaps they see dead people. Uh, that is quite possible. I don't know, but it's conceivable anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's, uh, let's think. Um, oh, uh, Phil now is the word that I like so much. CSL's term for rational species. Uh, yeah. Now, um, H N A U very useful term. Um, okay. Yeah, fourth unless we have no evidence that moonlight affects their perception at all. At least Strader doesn't mention it here. Um, and uh, belongs bond. Yes, the Nazgul are not dead. In fact, but uh, 
this is the uh, the end point of the stretching butter over too much bread process, presumably. Um, yeah, Matt, exactly. The transformation that we see in Gwarfindel, right, uh, when Frodo gets a glimpse of what he looks like on the other side, suggests that if you could see the other side all the time, you uh, you would see many what's the phrase signs and forms that are hidden from us right absolutely they see those things especially clearly at night um now you might ask so what about when you're wearing the ring right um of course we know famously and i've never been a big fan of the ring vision world that frodo is surrounded by when uh, he puts on the ring in the fellowship you know in the peter jackson movies the thing I always disliked about that was uh, that um, based on the text, like Bilbo would have had to live that way for weeks at a time. I mean, he, he lived invisibly in the halls of the Elven King for weeks. Uh, and the idea that the entire time Bilbo was going around with like the creepy, I see you and everything else. Right. While Sauron was just a few hundred miles south, right in more in, in Mirkwood. It's just it, it, that's obviously not what Tolkien is describing, right? And yet, the, it's not that there's no grounding for that, right? Um, in other words, what I would say is, it's clear that that's not the experience of putting on the ring. Uh, neither Bilbo nor Frodo records any kind of strangeness or distortion to their vision uh, up to this point. That's never happened before. Right when they put on the ring, but in a sense, it's interesting that they don't. Uh, Peter Jackson's depiction does not match the depiction in the text. But why not? Why doesn't? Why don't Bilbo and Frodo suddenly see the Wraith world exposed in front of them? Right, um, and the answer seems to be, yeah. Now, Doctor Evil Cannon, we do get a mention of distortion from Sam. That's later, much later. And right on the borders of Mordor, right? Lots of things change. Proximity, right? Uh, inverse distance squared. <laughs> like I say, it's it's a different world on the on the on the borders of Mordor than it is out here. The interesting thing is that Frodo and Bilbo see the world normally, right? They are looking at our regular world. They just are not apparent to our regular world. Their connection to our regular world seems to be different. The the Way the extent to which Frodo, at least in the films, is kind of incorporated much more fully into the Wraith world is interesting and it works dramatically in the film. Um, but I think it's important that it isn't like that in the book, actually, right? Um, he's not taken in like a native to the Wraith world, he doesn't find himself in a new world, in a new place when he puts on the ring. He could. That concept is there. Strider is suggesting that, right? The wraiths are in that place. But that seems to me the crucial thing, right? It's not putting on the ring that makes you a native of the wraith world, that makes you see the wraith world around you all the time. It is the wraithification process, right? As you get more, as they get more and more corrupted, Bilbo and Frodo, right? As they themselves move closer to a wraith-like existence, themselves that seem would seem to be when they would be entering more and more into until they were like wraiths themselves and and permanently there so the 
ring affects their bodies. The ring, you know, makes them invisible because their, their, their bodies, their forms have been sort of taken over into the wraith world, but they don't just see it all the time. Right. Um, yeah. So let's, um, um, let's watch how this goes because several of you are asking about Frodo's vision of the ring wraiths. I know, right? That's exactly what I'm thinking about. And that's exactly why this is so interesting. So let's see what happens when, when we get there, but you know, skipping ahead, right? That's not for like two more weeks, at least, uh, we'll get there. Okay. So let's keep going. There are other senses as well. Okay. Um, at all times, they smell the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. So the smelling thing, right? The sniffing, uh, sn- you know, sniffing creatures with invisible noses. What they are sniffing is the blood of living things. They desire and hate the blood of living things. And there are other senses too. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them. They feel ours more keenly. Also, he added, the ring draws them. All right, let's come back to that in a second. Um, the smelling and the senses other than sight or smell. Um, I don't think, by the way, when it says there's smell, blood, this is not like a shark or something, Right. I don't think you have to spill blood and I don't, I don't think they would hone in on drops of blood on the ground or something like that. I think it's not about that. Right. Um, they seem to smell to desire and to hate the blood of living creatures while it is still inside the body of the living creature in question. Right. Um, again, it doesn't mean that they, 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 uh, will track you down twice as fast if you have an open wound. I don't think. Um, but it's just about your being a living person. Right. Uh, the blood is the life was true in Dracula. And I suspect in that sense, it's true here. Um, what their smell, what Strider is referring to when he talks about them smelling the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. Um, and I think what they're desiring is not, I don't, they're, I don't think they drink the blood of humans. I don't, I don't think they desire the blood of living things in that way. Right. Um, <laughs> They like blood. They just don't like blood like that, right? At least I, I don't I don't see any reason to believe. I see no support, no evidence to support the idea that they actually drink the blood of living creatures. You could take it that way, right? I mean it's possible. I could imagine people taking it that way, but I don't I'm not I don't believe that at all, right? Um they desire and hate the blood of living creatures because they themselves are not living, right? They are envious of the blood of living creatures, right? They can smell it. They can smell the life. They can smell the warm life of a living creature. They can't see it, right? But they can smell it, right? They can smell, but I think it's the livingness. It's the life that they smell. I suspect if a, there were like a, if somebody were killed, Right. If somebody were lying cold and dead and their body's been lying there for hours, right, and all the you know, blood is everywhere, I don't think that I, I think the ring race would probably smell that less rather than more. Because they're not alive anymore. Right? Um I think it's the life that they're smelling, not again physically the blood. Um and yeah, they do hate everything, even their master belongs mond. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um 
do they, you know, hate and love themselves like Gollum hated and loved himself in the rings? That's probably still there, right? Um, we don't really get that much uh, for, about Ringwraith psychology. Um, uh, we don't know for sure. They do seem to be loyal servants, right? We don't see them grudging against Sauron, and yet um, uh, even this one little glimpse of desiring and hating the blood of living creatures um, suggests that that kind of conflict, that kind of simultaneous desire and hatred is certainly in them. Um, exactly. They want blood. They don't need it, Ethelot. I agree. They they want it. They want it in the sense of, like, they want to have it themselves, right? The life, remember, life was what they were about. Life is how they got into this predicament. The desire to have and to keep life. Um, they don't want blood to drink. They want blood to circulate, right? Um, they are longing with envy uh, uh, after the life of other living creatures. Um. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly, Kate. Yeah, the 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 the, the sort of the biblical, both Old and New Testament uh, connections between blood and life is is one of the things that I'm thinking of here. I was uh, being a little bit flippant in bringing up Dracula, but of course, I, I think it's relevant, and for the same reason, right? Um, that's why Dracula drinks blood, after all, right? It's not just uh, because it's an excellent protein source, uh, but uh, because uh, he's about consuming the life of living creatures. Okay, so one more thing. Uh, Ali, I'll come back to your question because it's a great question that was asked earlier on as well, and we'll come back to that in a second, but the ring draws them. Okay. Um. No, I got nothing. Um, uh, well, we observe that Strider says that, but let's leave that for now because uh, we'll get a win. In as much as there will be more, we'll get more uh, later on. Sorry, just dropped something out of my pocket. Um, uh, but we don't have it yet, uh, so let's not. Um, so let's not let's not go there yet. Um, but we'll hang on to that. So I'll go instead to Ali's question: um, How does Strider know all this? Right. Where is Strider? What is the source of Strider's lore on the ring rates? Um, I think he has to. I mean, there are a few obvious candidates, right? Uh, I would say two things. We know he's been taught stuff. I mean, presumably he you'd think he would have availed himself of the available, you know, resources at Rivendell. Right. Um Especially, you know, as he decides he's going to make a career of opposing the shadow, right? He's going to go pro in the whole uh, fighting evil business, which we know he is going to, he decides fairly early in his life. You know, there's a lot of people with a lot of experience here. I think he would have, uh, uh, you know, asked about these things. And then in addition, of course, there's his own personal experience, right? He has probably had more direct experience uh, with um, the Ringwraiths uh, than most of the lore masters that he could speak to in Rivendell, right? Uh, so uh, the combination of those two things. I mean, remember his PTSD reaction uh, when he was talking about the Ringwraiths, right? He's interacted with them. He has learned of them from interacting with them in large part. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I need to 
there we go. Um, yeah. So his own experience combined with uh, what he's learned, every reason to think, uh, uh, Halstein, that he took Ringwraith 101 in Rivendell, right? And then uh, I would think it was probably like a 200 level class, right? Like he probably took Defense of the Dark Arts against the Dark Arts 101, right? Just sort of a general, like the Ways of the Shadow introductory, you know, lecture course, and then like an advanced seminar in, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the fighting the shadow major at Rivendell, right. Would have had like the, you know, the sophomore level classes would be like, you know, advanced, uh, advanced seminar on the Ulyri, right. And then, uh, he would have gone on for some practical tutorials, uh, further down the road. So that all, I, I it's, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's lots of opportunity for him to have gotten both kinds of, uh, of, of knowledge, about uh, about about the ringwraiths, um, okay, absolutely. I do think that Glorfindel would have been the one to teach uh, the advanced uh, the advanced seminar on the Ulyri. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, okay, was there something else? I, want? I think there's something. There's a lot I wanted to talk about on this page. This is a big page, right? This is this this paragraph is huge for. Ringwraith lore. We learn as much about ringwraiths and how they operate in this paragraph uh, as we do almost anywhere else. I mean, if we had to have to narrow down, like if we had to put together all of the concrete information we're given about ringwraiths, this is one of the big places, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. So let's see. Um, oh, the spies, right? We do need to talk about the spies. So the black horses can see. Okay. The black horses can see. I'm not sure what that suggests. I mean, does it suggest some kind of like empathic connection between the ring raids and their horses? Right now, what Forthal was just saying that is, do the black horses also talk? Right? Presumably, they don't talk. But but that's exactly a good question. Right? So, what if the horses can see? Right? I mean, uh, how is that going to get back to the ring raids? Um, uh, I don't know exactly what that's uh, supposed to mean does it just mean that they like you know are very perceptive to the horses and uh like notice when the horses react to something um i don't i don't really know i mean it's hard to imagine these horses being utterly complicit complicit you know and uh in fact like collaborators with the shadow um it's hard to believe maybe Maybe, uh, maybe they've been thoroughly corrupted, uh, to that extent. Um, but, uh, but I'm not really sure. Not a cat does point out that there does seem to be, however, some form of communication with beasts, whether it's their horses or not. Uh, because of course, both men and other creatures are used as spies. Um, and, uh, we've already had the mention of birds as well. So, um, Yeah. No, I mean, there does seem to be some mechanism by which the non-human spies can communicate with the Nazgul that might possibly mean that the Nazgul can communicate with their horses or understand what their horses see or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> Aslan's Compass, I agree. Aslan's Compass says, on the simplest level, it means the horses of the ring raids don't run into trees, right? Um, the black horses can see. Um yeah, like so it's not like 
you know, everything there is blind. Like you don't have to worry about anything. Um, yeah, they, they don't run into trees. Agreed. Um, but there does seem to be some sort of kind of communication. Um, yeah. Yeah. See, Ali, that's exactly the direction that I was thinking of, right? We do learn later that the horses, uh, well, okay, we don't learn. It is suggested that the horses that they use are Rohiric horses, right? Um, the orcs come and always steal the black horses. And these are, of course, black horses that we see them riding. Um, this seems likely to be the fate of all of those stolen black horses that the Rohirrim lament. Um, so Ali asks then the sensible follow-up question, is it possible that the horses of Rohan are corrupted? Um, uh, similarly, to, you know, in some sense, maybe some shadow of like the corruption of elves into orcs. Well, that's what I was wondering too. I mean, you think about the the connection that the that the riders of Rohan seem to have with their horses, right? Um, they can't exactly speak to them, and yet you've got to think that if Amir's horse sees an enemy off in the distance, Amir's going to know about it, right? Somehow he's going to figure that out, right? Um, so. Uh, you know, there does seem to be some kinds of sort of nonverbal communication, right, between horse and rider uh, in uh, in Rohan. Does that suggest that? Um, um, does that suggest that uh, they, the riders, have corrupted the spirits of the horses? That the horse horses have become, as they say, active collaborators. I don't think we need to think about an actual elf to orc conversion going on here, right? Like uh, the horses that they ride on are not truly horses anymore, but have been twisted into something entirely different. Uh, I, I, I don't think we need go that far. Um, it could just be that their will was broken and that they now serve their new masters as well as they would have served their good masters um, had they remained uh, in Rohan. Um, now, Ganetta points out uh, that if Gandalf and Radagast can communicate with beasts, then why not the Ringwraiths? I would add, and why not in particular the Witch King, right? Um, that the others, I, I don't think all of them need necessarily be able to uh, communicate with birds and beasts, but I see no reason why the Witch King shouldn't. It does seem to be kind of a wizardly thing, really, right? Um, and it's it's honestly, it's in it seems to be in their kind of job description as wizards rather than as part of their makeup as Maiar that they speak to birds and beasts. Certainly, I would say uh, the ability to speak to birds and beasts does seem to predate the whole Maiar thing uh, uh, for Gandalf. Remember the... Remember the song? Well, I say remember. We haven't gotten there yet. But uh, do you remember the song that Frodo, the, the 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 lament that Frodo sings about Gandalf after he falls in Moria? Right. Oops. Sorry. Spoilers. Um, right. With bird on bough and beast in den, in their own secret tongues, he spoke. He says of Gandalf. Um, so um, yeah, he can speak the languages of birds and beasts. Uh. I would be very willing to bet that the Witch King can also speak the languages of birds and beasts. So uh, that seems possible. Bricktails, that's very true. And and I agree that um, uh, the the way in which um, the Ringwraiths themselves tend to act more 
bestial, right? The crawling on all fours and sniffing the ground um, makes it seem kind of more believable that there's uh, some kind of communion with beasts there. Yeah. Um, but sure. Yeah. The, um, um, the, uh, uh, the witch king. Yeah. He's, he is, uh, you know, was the witch king, a wizard sorcerer. Oh yeah, absolutely. He was very sorcerous. <laughs> uh, yep. Yep. Certainly. Um, yeah, cool. Okay. Um, yeah, Ethelwad is wondering about the corruption of the wills of uh, of others. You know, are they going to remain dominated? See, I'm not sure about dominated. Remember, like Bill Fernie, right? Bill Fernie's not dominated, right? He's just a bad egg, right? Uh, Harry doesn't seem to be dominated. He's just intimidated. Um, he's making. He's uh, seems to be. I would say that you know. Uh, 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 Harry Goatleaf, right, is um, a no reason to think that he was a wicked guy all the way through, right? But he's been intimidated. Um, his will has been cowed, by which I don't mean like he has become dominated and is now like a zombie, right? It doesn't mean that, right? It just means that he's now working for them. Um, he's afraid. He's afraid of the Ringwraiths, uh, and he doesn't want to oppose them. So he has made the choice to do what they want him to do. Bill Fernie didn't take all that much convincing, right? He's also doing what he wants, uh, what they want him to do. But again, not because he's been dominated, but because he's a jerk, right? And a scoundrel, and because he thinks there's profit in it for him. Um, they offered him a bribe, and he took it, right? So it was his choice. But it's still, his will is serving them, right? Were the horses like that? Right? I don't know. Um, so I, you know, would the Brewanders go back to be, you know, like, is there any hope for Harry Goatleaf? You know, could Harry Goatleaf reform uh, and become a constructive member of the Breland Society uh, later on if he had, you know, if he were to be pardoned uh, for his participation in the brigandage? Uh, Possibly. I mean, yeah, it's possible. I think he has every bit as much of a chance of, uh, you know, seeing the error of his ways and, and uh, repenting as anybody else. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, ah, Kate, that is. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Kate says she realized, just realized that the fox was probably planted in the Shire by Radagast on behalf of Gandalf. Part of the whole guard set on the Shire. Yeah, oh, the thinking fox. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, that's, that's got to be it, right? Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. It seems That conclusion seems almost inescapable, actually, the more you think about it. Especially since we saw foxes again later on, right? There's clearly a general fox network, right? The fox news network, as it were, right? Sending news to Radagast and Gandalf. Absolutely. Totally. Okay. Um, what's um, let's keep going. Keep going. I say. Was this, is there another thing I wanted to talk about here? Uh, yeah. No, I'm good. The ring draws them. Um. Okay, one more. 
Is there no escape, then? said Frodo, looking round wildly. If I move, I shall be seen and hunted. If I stay, I shall draw them to me. Strider laid his hand on his, on his shoulder. There is still hope, he said. You are not alone. Let us take this wood that is set ready for the fire as a sign. There is little shelter or defense here, but fire shall serve for both. Sauron can put fire to his evil uses, as he can all things, but these riders do not love it and fear those who wield it. Fire is our friend in the wilderness. Maybe, muttered Sam. It's also as good a way of saying, here we are as I can think of, bar shouting. Um, okay. I love this passage, right? Uh, this is, there, there are a bunch of points in the book that become really cool. Uh, once you learn that Aragorn's name was Hope, right, for most of his childhood, like he grew up being called Hope by everybody around him. Estelle was his name, which means Hope. Um, so this is one of those, um, uh, this is this this is one of those things. Oh, Matt, I knew there was something else. No, you're right, Matt. Hang on a second. Wait, pause. Pause on the Estelle thing. Uh, Matt pointed out that I knew there was another thing I meant to talk about, and that is Strider's comment that uh, uh, we can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here, uh, which would seem to explain Sam's premonition. Um, I still think the wording of Sam's premonition is conspicuous. It might just be accidental foreshadowing. Um, but uh, uh, another question I have about this. Um, another question I have about this is whether or not Strider is suggesting that you, they feel their presence in this, like that their immediate proximity or they sense that they were here. Like what they're feeling is the fact that the ring rates were just here recently. Right. Um, it troubled our hearts as soon as we came here. Right. Um, by that, I take Strider to mean like, so this spot is still full of the presence of the ring rates. Right. We can sense it when we come here. Um, I don't think it's like when they were just outside the Dell or when they were just down the road from the Dell, like now they're super far from the ring rates and can't feel them. Right. Like, I don't think this is a, like, you know, like playing the hot and cold game. Like they're, you know, coming into the Dell and they're like, well, you know, hotter, hotter, hotter as they're getting physically closer to the ring rates. Um, I can't imagine that half a mile up the road, they're more appreciably far away from the ring wraiths as they are here, such that now they can sense them and before they couldn't. So again, I don't think Strider is referring to their current proximity to the ring wraiths. I think he is talking about the fact that the presence of the ring wraiths has left a kind of mark on this spot. Um, and that's why he says, it troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them, right? Um, after we saw them, we might be worrying about them, right? And so they, they're, they, uh, they're, our hearts are troubled, right? Our hearts are troubled because we saw the ring wraiths out on the road, but our hearts were troubled before that, right? Even before we saw them on the road, um, our hearts were troubled as soon as we came here. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, fourth thought was wonders if the Dell was where the Nazgul gathered before assaulting Gandalf. Uh, yeah, though presumably, uh, and presumably his, uh, the remnant of his camp there is, um, I mean, he was probably the one who lit the fire there recently and the signs of a hasty camp were probably his, right? Um, Gandalf's that is. So if I am understanding it properly, how I would reconstruct events, um, 
would be something like this. Gandalf is camping in the dell under Weathertop, right? He senses the Black Riders getting close to him, right? Closing in on him. He flees and he flees up the hill because he knows he's not going to go herring off into it's night, right? He's not going to go herring off into the forest in the middle of the night running from the ring rays. It's not what you do, right? Um, he, they're going to be stronger there, right? Um, so they're going to, f- so he's going to go up the hill, right? Where he can defend himself on the hilltop. And they follow him up the hilltop. They have their fight, scorching fight up on the hilltop. Gandalf withdraws, right? And they pursue him. He probably comes scrambling down. Maybe that is when the rocks fell down on the far side uh, uh, of the dell, uh, jumps on his horse and takes off. Bricktail says, so they just left Gandalf's horse sitting there. Yeah, sure. Why not? Why not? Um, I mean, his horse there is Shadowfax, right? Uh, I would think Shadowfax could... Uh, uh, belongs on your right if Shadowfax wouldn't have to be tied up, right? Um, he could have taken off and come back. Um, I also would not find it hard to believe that they would just leave the horse. What do they want with the horse? Again, they, it's not like they eat things, right? It's not like they would eat the horse or suck the horse's blood or something like that. They're not going to care about the horse, right? Um, but they could have tracked uh, Gandalf to this spot. They would have detected that Gandalf went up the hill. He's the one they want. They don't care about the horse. Um, so they would, uh, they would, they would chase him up the hill. I mean, even if, Sha- even if it is Shadowfax, right? I don't think they probably uh, uh, would care, really. Um, I mean, you're right that killing the horse would make it harder for Gandalf to flee, like the scattering of the ponies in Brief Fourth Thoughtless. But remember, that seems to be Bill Fernie's plan, not the Ringwraiths. Right. That doesn't seem to be how the ring raids think. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't I still don't think that that's what the, I mean, I'm not saying that the Witch King's dumb because he's not dumb. Um, but also, again, like, why should they bother with the horse? Um, what's he going to do? Send a couple of the ring raids to chase down Shadowfax? A, how are they going to catch him? <laughs> right? Because, of course, I said Gandalf tied up his horse. I was not even thinking about, of course, that this is Shadowfax, right? Gandalf is going to tie up Shadowfax. So what are they going to do to Shadowfax? <laughs> right? How are they going to do anything to Shadowfax? Um, they're not going to be able to catch Shadowfax, nor are any other horses going to be able to catch Shadowfax. So if they went for Shadowfax, he'd run and get away. No questions. So I don't think there's uh, Shadowfax is in much danger, nor do I think that Gandalf would be worried that Shadowfax would be in much danger. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, um, good. Anyhow, so, uh, oh, shoot, sorry, my uh, Twitter feed just seems to have been messed up. Um, oh, well. Um, okay, my apologies there. Uh, never mind, I'll keep going. I'm almost done with the main part anyway. Let's go back to over here. Okay, back to Hope. Um. Yeah, getting distracted talking about shadow facts. Frodo says, is there no escape then? If I move, I shall be seen and hunted. If I stay, I shall draw them to me. Um, so, yes. <laughs> short, short answer, Frodo. Yes. That's exactly kind of, uh, there is no, 
uh, escape here. Um, notice how Strider has been tactfully not explaining this, right, in this kind of detail to him before, right? Um, because Frodo's reaction seems to be more or less exactly what Strider has been trying to avoid, namely despair. If Frodo is overcome with terror and despair, it makes the Nazgul stronger, right? Um, remember Strider, or or Frodo rather saying to Gildor, I don't know what could be more terrifying than your hints and warnings, right? Um, knowing the certain truth of, um, when, of, you know, what is facing you, right? And what, um, uh, uh, like this, like this moment. Um, if I move, I shall be seen and hunted. If I stay, I shall draw them to me. Uh, it's a good thing that Frodo didn't have this particular moment, right? Until he uh, had Estelle with him, right? Until he had Hope uh, right there who could lay his hand on his shoulder and say, there is still hope. You are not alone, right? He wasn't alone before, but uh, he wouldn't have been. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't not alone in the same way that he's not alone here. And speaking of being not alone in a particular way, look at his segue. Look at, follow Aragorn's train of thought here. Frodo is in despair, right? Terror and despair. And Strider says, there is still hope. You are not alone. Let us take this wood that is set for the fire as a sign. There is little shelter or defense here, but fire shall serve for both. Fire is our friend in the wilderness. So I would say there are three things that we can see Aragorn saying to Frodo here, right? One, fire is our friend. You're not alone. Fire is our friend in the wilderness, right? So uh, reason number one to cheer up Frodo and not to despair is we have resources, right? It This may seem helpless, right? You may seem helpless. And this may seem absolutely hopeless. How can we possibly resist them? How can we keep from being destroyed? Um, we're all going to die. We're all going to die, right? So his first thing is, no, we're not necessarily all going to die, right? Um, they hate fire. We have fire. Um, this We have all of this firewood that has been left for us, right? So... Let's make a fire. We can, with that, we have a chance of fighting off the enemy. And uh, Matt, that's a really great point. Um, the swords from the barrows will appear as firebrands when seen from the wraith world, says Matt. So that is a really interesting point. Um, okay, so so his rebuttal to Frodo's despair, the first part is, we have resources. Fire is our friend. The second thing, you are not alone. You have comrades, right? We are all here. Um, uh, fire is not just your friend. Fire is our friend. We are all in this together. You are not alone. You have us to help to defend you. And together, we might be able to fight them off. Right? Third, you are not alone. Let us take this wood that is set ready for the fire as a sign. And Belongsmond, I absolutely hear that as a reference to Providence as well, right? Um, this is the first time Strider has delivered this line. 
let us take this, whatever it is, as a sign, right? Um, he's not even going, um, uh, he's not even, he's not even, uh, uh, not a cat. He, he, he's not even speaking in the, with the, uh, if chance you call it kind of evasive language, right? Um, uh, he's, he's being much more open than that, right? Um, by Gildor, by him saying that it was a, it was but a chance meeting if chance you call it, right? Is a acknowledging the fact that there is more to chance than most people say. Like he's acknowledging you would call it chance, right? Your people tend to use that kind of word. They talk about luck and they talk about chance. Um, the fact that I'm observing that some people call it chance, but I seem not to, right, suggests that I know something about it that you don't, right? Strider is much more clear than that. Let us take this as a sign, right? Um, you are not alone. Someone is looking out for us and has brought us to a place where the resource that we need that would most help us to defend ourselves against the enemy happens to be here ready for us, right? Let us embrace that chance. Let us embrace that providence, right? So his comforting speech is pretty comforting, actually, right? Um, that you are not alone, as I said, works in those three different ways. But of course, it's Sam who gets the last line, right? Maybe. It's also as good a way of saying, here we are, as I can think of, bar shouting. Um, originally, Strider was emphasizing, we'll be best concealed here. Right. Um, this Dell is safest. His first answer back a few paragraphs ago, right, was I can't think of anywhere where we would be safer than here. This is the best spot that we uh, have found yet. And if we move, we're more likely to be seen. And now he's talking about building a big fire. Right. And Sam is like, well, so much for not being seen. Um, it's as good a way as saying here we are as I can think of. Um, yeah. Um, so Sam sort of grumbles about this, but what Sam is observing, I think that this is a moment in this moment um, when Strider says, let us take this wood that is set ready for the fire as a sign. I believe that Strider has made a decision, right? Um, because this does, in fact, Sam is right. And this does, in fact, contradict his approach before. Before, he had been thinking, let's try to hide. Let's stay in this dell and hope they don't see us or know where we are because we have the best chance of remaining hidden here. That was the rationale that he was explaining before. Now, he doesn't care, it seems, about remaining hidden. He seems to realize, maybe having talked through it himself, that they're going to be found, right? They can be smelled. The ring draws them. Even if they're not seen by spies, the enemy's going to sense their presence, right? And, and uh, uh, hone in on them. So let's fight. Let us prepare to fight against the enemy when it comes. Um, and Kate, I agree. He does step out of his reticence and hedging, Strider does. Um, he's being definitive. And that is a mode of hope itself. Um, and notice, Kate, I would also add to that, he's being inclusively definitive, right? He's not just saying... We shall take this, you know, or I shall take this wood as a sign, right? Um, 
that's not what he says. Let us take this wood for a sign. You and me, Frodo. We'll do that together. Let us both interpret it this way. Let us both join in this decision. It's a very inclusive. It's confident, right? But it's all, but it's very inclusive as well. Let us take this as a sign. I'm going to take it this way, Frodo, and so should you, right? Because you should have hope because you are not alone. Um, yeah, this really is, Kate, I agree. This is a big fellowship moment. Um, fellowship has already been a... Uh, uh, an important motif in this book. We saw that from, you know, Gandalf's saying that he shouldn't go alone to the conspiracy unmasked. And, you know, what we saw in, you know, as they went in, in uh, um, three is company conversation with Gildor, um, the um, even the behavior of the ponies on the Barrow Downs and Tom Bombadil's comments on that, right? Uh, the common room of the inn at Bree, um, Strider helping them in the night uh, in Bree, Nob's rescue. Many times we have seen already the importance of fellowship, right? Um, uh, yeah, well, Brick tells you, yeah, there, there is, of course, the title of the book, but I don't take that as evidence um, <laughs> in a sense. That is, the title was so uh, late and grudging uh, that um, all the stuff in the text predates it. Um, but anyway, um, so, yeah, but back to Sam's last comment. Uh, Sam is still concerned, right? Um, it is to sam to observe um that all of this hopeful talk might be good right but he is the one who makes explicit to us the consequences of aragorn's decision right um the consequence of aragorn's decision is they're not going to hide i mean he he is drawing our attention to the fact that this choice this choice to build a fire and by building a fire to sort of fort up um, uh, that choice is a choice to abandon stealth. They are going to, to, to draw the attention of the enemy to give up any. So in this embracing of hope, they are giving up uh, the chance of, of stealth, right? They are abandoning stealth and Sam is conscious of that and is pointing that out. Right. Can we see this as, uh, Ali, exactly what I was just going to say, Sam doubting Strider? I'm not sure about doubt, but being willing to point out the shortfalls of the plan, right? Um, Strider's plan is very hopeful, but it has a downside. And Sam is the one who is going to not only notice the downside uh, and draw our attention to the downside, he is going to... um, Give voice to it, right? It doesn't speak. Oh, it doesn't speak to Strider's face about it, right? We don't get a Mister Strider statement here, um, but um, he uh, is going to voice under his breath his very common sense reaction, pointing out that um, this plan is not without risk, <laughs> right? Um, Kate says common sense can be depressing sometimes. So true. 
Uh, so true. I'm so glad I so rarely have to deal with that. Um, cool. Yes. Um, his, uh, Fourth Dauntless uh, clarifies Sam is doubting Strider's decision, but not necessarily mistrusting him. Yes. I don't see mistrust in this either. Right. I just see Sam saying, well, this might turn out really badly. <laughs> right. That's essentially that, 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 that would seem to be the, um, one of the ways to kind of paraphrase, paraphrase, uh, uh Sam's comment here. All right. Um, we're going to stop there. We're well over time and I still want to do the field trip and it doesn't feel quite as much like overtime cause it's not midnight, but, uh, nevertheless, uh, um, although, uh, it is not, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the very witching hour that is, uh, calling to my attention, the fact that it's, uh, getting to be late. The fact that my children are going to want to eat before too long is, uh, is reminding me. So I still have to go feed my family at some point. So we're going to stop this now tonight. Well, we're going to stop our, uh, text portion of the class and we are going to do our field trip. So, um, uh, thanks to everybody who has uh, who is joining us just for this. I already, unfortunately, had my Twitter stream interrupted, so I've already forcibly said goodbye to my Twitter people. Um, but um, so thanks to all of you who are not going to continue with us. If you are, uh, uh, come and join us here in the either in Discord or the Twitch chat, um, as we are here on the Brandywine server, and we are going to. Uh, continue here so and uh ali i think you got your microphone on hello yes uh, i finally did thanks to trish yeah, uh, yes i saw trish <laughs> a wild trish showed up and uh, a, a wild trish appeared and, and oh yeah, yeah. out mean, of nowhere yeah she came out like a you know like uh like a, a, a knight errant king pelinor passing through <laughs> and she uh uh she opened up your mic so that that's awesome um uh, so, uh, Corey did say that we are going to be riding. So, um, I did want to summon people who were unable to ride there. But I think if we, if we are all riding, we should be fine and can protect people uh, even yeah. if we are lower level. So, there won't be any problem. Yeah, um, yeah as long as people... If, if, if anybody doesn't have a horse or doesn't have access to a horse, uh, you could come up to the come up to the stage now and we'll, we'll transport people. So, yeah, if there's... If there are non-riders, walkers will take longer, or runners yes. will take longer. <laughs> I'll summon uh, whoever needs uh, like a summon once we reach the destination. Uh, they can uh, send me a tell and I can uh, summon them uh, where we need to be. Okay, good, good. But before we take off, uh, uh, Ali, you had uh, you had said that you had you had... Uh, you didn't get to do the introduction at the beginning, which I was hoping to, to allow you to do to introduce yourself and uh, your kinship as well, which is uh, uh, which is uh, sort of hosting us here today on Brandywine. Uh, and uh, and I think you said you had a you had a poem that you wanted to read. I did have a few verses uh, from a poem. I because I think it's like a. Tr- tradition that right. uh, every time we do host uh, the Tolkien professors uh, sessions here I do say some words in in rhymes uh, just um, because I do love poetry and I know Tolkien loved poetry as well um, obviously not as good a poet as Tolkien was <laughs> uh, being a master of language and everything um, uh, but I do try um, and yeah so I uh, wrote uh, last time um, I did like a little uh, tribute to the troll song um 
And this time, um, since we were on the topic of uh, reading the uh, Road Goes Ever On and On poem, and uh, I did mention to Corey before that he did four versions together and he read them all, which was very cool. Uh, so in the same uh, essence of the poem, um, mine goes like this. The lore goes ever on and on, right when the Hobbit podcast began. See how far the road has gone, and we must follow it if we can. Pursuing it with passion, with eager minds, striving for knowledge to find our way. The details and amazing ways he finds, where the next adventure leads, I cannot say. So welcome to another session of lore. I know this part was supposed to be at the start. At the beginning, yes. So, well, thank you for staying for another session of Lore, where casual raiders once again host a journey of discovery, discussion, a journey to explore, a scholar by our side, better than the rest, better than most. So let us all thanks, thank you, Corey. Our session um, must start as we venture deeper into the story. Now let us depart. Again, it was supposed to be at the end of the, the beginning, intro, yes. <laughs> but uh, now let us depart indeed uh, on our field trip. Exactly. Oh. Right. Very good. Thank you. Um, my only hope is that, um, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the eagerness doesn't change to weariness before the end, uh, of course, as we, <laughs> so we don't shift well, from the Bilbo version to the Frodo version uh, before we get to the end still of the like book. At least three years away from that ever happening at the <laughs> pace good. that we are going. I think we'll be fine for the next two years at least. That's good. Yeah. Because uh, it, it, it might take us a year to get through the Council of Elrond. Um, but um, yeah, as I think I, I we are likely to take every bit of 15 sessions to get through chapter 11. Uh, and it's not like chapter 11 is the longest chapter in the whole book. It's all good though. Um as I've said before, I don't apologize because I'm never going to get a chance to do this again. This this will be the most in-depth discussion of the Lord of the Rings of my whole life. So I'm going to take advantage of it. So, all right. Um, let's uh, then let's take off. So, okay. So if you, yeah, if you need a ride, you can come up here uh, and Ali will transport you. Um, I think we're going to go. What time of day is it? It is morning sweet let's go up to weathertop then so let's meet on let's meet on uh let's meet on top of weathertop uh and because uh, last time we were up there looking at the view but it was nighttime uh so we couldn't see that much i wanted to see it during the day so let's let's go up to the top of weathertop we'll start there and then we will explore outwards from there what i want to uh do sort of start anyway today um and we'll continue this as we go through is to be doing a little bit more uh, Lone Lands exploration. So we, we did some... I'm thinking especially of what we were doing in the... I mean, I guess we should really should go this way, right? It's faster. Yeah, let's go this way. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, looking at the, um, uh, the Lone Lands from a, a, a sort of archaeological and historical point of view, looking at what we see... Um, uh, in, in the lowlands, as far as the geography and the ruins, we've already discussed mm, 
I think pretty much every part of the Lone Lands, which is in the book. There's, you know, not too many of them. Um, you know, we get the reference, of course, to the Forsaken Inn, and we get... I'm lagging here. Um, and we get uh, uh, some... Yeah, so, so we get uh, the reference to the Forsaken Inn, and of course we get Weathertop and the approach to Weathertop that we were already looking at. Um, we saw the dell where they were, you know, hiding and where uh, um, where Frodo's going to be attacked. Okay, so I'm just going to pause here for a second. We got, all right, we're all heading out here. Okay, all right, no problem. We'll head on towards Rivendell here. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, like with Rivendell, we're almost done with all of this, but we're, of course we'll get the last bridge. That will be really sort of the next thing, um, that will, I think that I can think of anyway, that maps really closely onto what we see in the game. Uh, or yeah, yeah. The f- parts from the book that map onto the game. Um, but of course there's much more than that. Right. And, uh, the, this is where we get the really you know, the, the, the really smart and detail-oriented kind of adaptation uh, that Lotro is so famous for. So in the North Downs, we were looking at it primarily from an Arnorian context, right? Because the North Downs uh, was a major part, you know, a really important part of the old lost kingdom of Arnor um, uh, because it was where Fornost was. And so it was the capital of Arthodia. And we were looking at places where we could see evidence of the, the dividing lines post-Arnorian civil war between Arthodyne and Rudaur, especially. Um, over here in the Brelands, we were looking at um, uh, where the uh, the the uh, Cartilangian ruins, of which we decided must be the adjectival form, um, up in the Barrow Downs, uh, and uh, sort of where we could see the lines. I love how you can look at uh, the land around here and not only see the direct connections to the book, you know, um, which have so rarely disappointed me in the game when there are details that are specifically mentioned in the book uh, and I go looking for them in the game, I can usually find them. Uh, and that's uh, that's always been delightful. But it's not just that, right? Um, it's also the bigger picture. It's also the whole um, history of uh, of this area uh, as we uh, have it uh, described for us, especially in the appendices, especially in Appendix A uh, of The Return of the King. So I'm waiting here until I cross the border. Then when I cross the border... I'll, actually, no, I won't pause. I won't pause. I'll head straight to Weathertop while the weather's good. With my luck, if I stood and lectured on the other side of the boundary, it'd be raining by the time I got up to Weathertop. So, it is a perfect day for um, uh, the vision and and seeing everything. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's go do some sightseeing while the sightseeing is good. How close uh, is the design that they made um, in Lotro uh, to the descriptions in the book? They are very good, generally, at capturing the sort of character of it, right? So um, that's what I really like about the Lone Lands. The, you know, all the way in which we're, you know, right now as we're transitioning from the lush green of the Breelands to the, uh, uh, to the, the, 
the you know the browns it just looks less fertile and less but that's very like the description especially of the land that they as uh in the book you know just as we were looking at a few weeks ago Ooh. sorry i can never pass the stable master without introducing myself what do you need um you have to always yeah, exactly they're so nice and welcoming they are so nice um and you never know when it might be good to have met them um so uh, anyway, uh, we were looking at it a few weeks ago um, in the text. I mean, the passage where they're climbing up out of the Midgewater Marshes and the uh, the the land as it's described with the sort of blasted trees and, um, you know, everything it looks more stunted, not actively desolate, you know, like the desolation of Smaug or or, or something like that. But, um, you know, that so the, it's not that. So when I say that they do a really good job of of sort of carrying over things from the book, it isn't that you can always necessarily find the exact locations that are described in the book. Um, the scale makes that really challenging. Uh, you know the differences in scale uh, between the world in the book and the and the world in the game. But at the same time, I think what they do, the two things that they do best, in my opinion, um, in Lotro. Uh, with their overall kind of capturing of the descriptions from the game. Um, the two things that they do best, I think, are first, individual details. Like, you know, when a particular when they're going to do a particular location that is described, um, they usually take those details that are mentioned very seriously. Um, so, that's, uh, uh, so that's one thing they're really good at. Is this the way... Is- no, wait, we need to go down to the dell, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, I was just interested to look at, because this is the waterfall that goes down into the dell. Interesting, that, right, and there's the wood. We can see it straight below us. Um, I think I wanted to look for. Okay, this is just the wood down here. It's. Uh, it should be this way. Yeah. The this is where the footprints would have been. All right, this is the camp. Oh, somebody, uh, let's kill this guy. <laughs> We're being attacked here by orcs, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, this is that other path up, right? I think this is the path we went up last week. It's faster than the road. Guess you can uh, pretty much uh, get to the top by um, going this this way. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, this is the way that always looks like you shouldn't be able to go, but you can. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Um. Okay. Alright. So here we are. Now let's look. Let's see. Which direction should we look first? First, let's look to the west. So looking down. These birds must be the spies that. Yes, um, these are exactly the spies that uh, Aragorn was worried about. Yes. And that, of course, is why. See, that's uh, that's another example of. Then picking up on a detail, right? Aragorn mentioned birds specifically, 
uh, in an earlier passage, and he talked about spies seeing them if they move. And so they put Krabine, um as spies up here on the on the hilltop um, uh, for you to find them in the game. But I don't think I finished my I, before I described this before uh, I, I didn't I don't think I finished my description before. Uh, that is, I said there were two ways in which I think Lotro captures the text really well in their physical and their landscape descriptions. One are specific details, as I say, of a particular scene. But even more than that is just the overall sort of quality. They're really good at capturing, you know, when Tolkien does those big landscape descriptions, writing kind of gives you the broad picture of what this land looks like. I think they do a really good job of capturing that. They don't, they can't capture every like hill and stream and tree that is described in the book. Because the scale is different. You just can't do that. Um, one hill in the game represents, you know, like 10 miles of country or something um, uh, in the book. So they can't make all the contours of the land look exactly the same. Um, and there are always going to be new things that weren't there, like uh, that ravine that we were looking at um, up north of, uh, of Weathertop when we were trying to find the way down. However... At the same time, they are really good at capturing the overall spirit. So I think the Lone Lands, the Lone Lands are perfect. I mean, it was just one of one of many places in the games in the game that I remember the first time I went there and was looking around, and I was just like, "This is exactly right. This is exactly perfect." Um, remember Strider just talking about how um, off to the west is uh, is open land, right? Um, with uh, uh, with no cover, uh, and you can see, yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, there's okay. There's a few trees, but there's not much cover here. Um, that's the road that we can see. We can see the road there winding in between. Um, what do we see? That's from here? the straight road that goes uh, from pretty much from the Shire or even from the Blue Mountains uh, straight yes. to Rimendel. Yes, exactly. Well, let me dismount. I'm still on my horse. If I dismount, can I get through there to Floyd and DeWitt, or do I have to go around? I have to go around, don't I? Uh, I think I might have yeah, to go I around. Yeah, I think so. All right, hang on. Go around this. Oh, there we go. Bit of wall here. Okay, yeah. A new deed. Yes, Look at there that. We go. The Adventures of Floyd and DeWitt. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. So, looking out from here, yeah, this is a better view. Looking out from here, we see the road winding through. We can see, well, towards the last bridge. can actually see the bridge clearly from here. Um, but we can see those hills up there, like the, the large hill that we can see off in the distance to the pretty much dead to the west. Those are the, the hills in which Rivendell is. So we can see quite a long ways here. Um, and what we can notice through here, look at these ruins. Again, ruins described in the book, but wow, there's a lot of ruins. Let's come back and let's kind of deal with the ruins afterwards. You know, goodness, I'm actually thinking there's so much we can see from here. Maybe we won't even go wandering down. Maybe we can just actually kind of talk about the big picture as we're sitting here on uh, on Weathertop. That would be actually kind of fun. Right. Oh, okay, I'm trying to look due south, but this uh, buttress here is in my way. Hang on. We're going to get a good view to the... 
to the south. If I sneak up here. You can't fall off here, can you? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, maybe you can on, in this side. <laughs> maybe you can on this side, yeah. I want to be careful. I <laughs> don't want to have to let's climb over there. Let's toss a dwarf and find out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So here to the south, we see the hills to the south. There's another ruin. So we've got the one big ruin south of the road, another ruin north of the road and much closer that we were looking at off to the east. Here's another ruin down to the south, but that's not... Uh, no. Okay, that is different from the one that we were in. That one, that's Minas Ariel over there. If we look off to the east. Hang on, let me go around this. See if we can get a better view over here. Yeah, this will be better. Oh, yeah. Right, this is great. Okay. So that is the ruin that we were in the... Yes, it is. That's the ruin that we were in the week before last. Um, the one with all the... Oh, yes, yeah, somebody just proved that you can, in fact, fall off there. Okay. <laughs> and he died. <laughs> that, was, that was a noble sacrifice in the interest of science there. <laughs> well, he's a hobbit, so in there the matters half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, all right. So that is that first ruin, which we saw was an Arthedanian ruin. Okay. Well, now let's look back to Frodo's view, which is the one that we were trying to look at before, last week. Okay, yeah, now we can see all the way back to Bree. We can, in, at night time oh, yes. before, we could only see right to the border of Bree. And now we can see all the way, there's the whole extent of the Midgewater Marshes, and there's uh, the beginnings of Bree Hill there coming up above the marsh right over there. If we come all the way to this side, can we begin to see any of Bree Town itself, actually? Not too much. A little Only misty up in the wood, I think. There. Yeah, yeah. You, you can just you can see the trees of the Chetwood rising up above it. You're right. Um. Yeah. Okay. So here we are reenacting uh, Elendil standing up here and watching for the coming of of uh, Gilgalad. But then again, he would have had this really nice tower to go up and look uh, from. So he could, he could have seen even further from there. Um, so you can't see anything like back towards the Shire. The Shire is off in the blue distance, just like it was for Bilbo. Uh, the Ringwraiths would have been congregating down... I mean, again, scale is not the same. We can see the Forsaken Inn really close there. Presumably, the Forsaken Inn is a good deal further away uh, than it looks here in the game um but you've still got to think that they were well no this really does um uh this really does kind of remind you and i know i was talking about this last week too but this was something i was noticing in the text as well when they see the black riders the black riders are on their side of the hill like the same side that their camp is on um so the emphasis is on the closeness of the riders. They're not right on top of them, but they are very close by. Um, yeah. Okay. Are these uh, trees supposed to be there, or um, like there should be more barren land where they could easily see the riders approaching, or um, is it normal that there are trees down there? 
Well, there are only a few trees here and there, which does match the description that we get. Um, it's not totally treeless, necessarily. Even when Strider talks about the land to the north of the road being open, um, I don't think it, that necessarily means that there is not a single tree. It just means that there isn't forest that you could hide in. Um, I mean, if you were down there, if you imagine somebody down there like trying to run from tree to tree, concealing themselves, it wouldn't work very well, right? Um, but um, anyway, so I'm looking now from this vantage point. I now want to, I'm now looking historically, right? I'm now looking with a special interest in ruins and thinking about what we see. Remember that this it was a frontier, right? Um, Weathertop, I mean, was a frontier. We know that this tower was in the hands of the kingdom of Arthedain coming down from Fornost. And they were the ones that we saw up by Bree, and they were also the ones Minas Ariel down there in the south, off to our left as we're standing here uh, on Weathertop. Um, that was Arthedanian too. So, if we continue around, let's look up to the north in the direction that the hobbits and Aragorn came from. Um, because... Let's see that. Oh, boy, it's hard to get there. Okay. I'm getting a tool tip here. Thank you. All right. Um, okay. Now, from here, we have those smaller towers down and to the left. So that's to the northeast. So that was presumably part of the... Arthedanian fortifications. That's where Kendyth is over there, right? Yes, that's so that stuff, that's the line where the road comes down. If we just if so if we look off there to the northwest, that's that sort of protected line. Those are presumably Arthedanian ruins as well, which means that to the east of here and to the north, to the north I see no ruins. Even on those remote hills. But we have this one very close. I yeah, I wonder what this was. Well, <clears throat> I've got to think. You know, we have yet to go down and explore that. But I'm going to guess that that's a Rudaran fortress. Because the way that Weathertop and the, uh, the defensive line leading up to it, which the, ro the road that they were following south... Um, was described, made it sound like this is really the frontier, you know, that uh, uh, that the enemy was based nearby. So I'm going to guess that that very nearby ruin there is probably a Rudauran ruin. We'll see if that turns out to be true. Now, what I wonder is, well, of course, I wonder if that's actually true. But then when we look out, we can see three other ruins, right? We can still see it kind of right yes. in the corner here. There's the one that's directly down to the southeast, which we can barely see around the corner here, right? That's way up on the hills. 
we see the other one that is down the other big ruin down to the south of the road. And we can't actually see very much of Ostgaruth at all, though we know where it is. But we know there's another ruin up there to the north of the road. So my question is, what would have been the history of this? I, as they say, I suspect that this one right down here below us probably belonged to Rudauer, which means that Ostgaruth probably belonged to Rudauer as well. But those ones in the south, I wonder, uh, Minas Ariel to the southeast of here was Arthedanian. Are these two? That seems possible. I wonder if the road was part of the frontier. That's This is what I'm going to be interested to see as we continue to explore these ruins moving forward. Um, because I love putting together the story. Because in general, I have found, you know, there have been some exceptions to this and things which look like they might be... Uh, um, it, which looks like it might be, uh, um, uh, you know, mistakes or something. But most of the time I have found, you know, that, that when they lay out the landscape, they do so in a really interesting and thoughtful way. Um, like they're thinking about the history. They're not just randomly placing ruins. Um, so in making the landscape, so of course they're telling you know, the, the, the Lotro developers are telling a story, of course, with the quest lines and everything else that they do. But even the way that they lay out the landscape uh, tells an interesting story. Um, so I see those four ruins that I want to look at. And there's, oh, we can't, from here, can't see it. There's that bridge, right? Can we see the bridge? Isn't there a bridge? The broken bridge? No, not the one on the road. The Yeah, that one we can barely see. Oh. Yeah, there it is. That bridge that that road up on the hills goes from. Because that's right off of Minas Ariel. That's then there's that little bridge. Uh, I'm looking now what to do south from where we're standing right now. Um, we can see that little bridge uh, that spans the, uh, the, the gulf there in the hill. Um, so right on the, on the left-hand side, on the, on the, on the western edge, that's where that little camp was, where we ended the day when we looked at Minas Ariel. Um, and then that road, we follow it up, leads to that large span, that large bridge over there. We didn't get there. So I want to go up there and I want to look at that ruin up on the hill. I'm going to call it, I think that's an Arthedanian ruin. I think that's an Arthedanian fortress. Uh, probably built after the split with Rudauer and during the conflict. That's going to be my guess. Yes, the Lornspan. I knew it had a name, Ganetta, but I couldn't remember what it was. I think that that's, that's the Lornspan there. Designed to create communication with Minas Ariel down here. But the interesting thing, therefore, you see, is that you can go back and forth between these two fortifications on these highly defensible hilltop paths without getting to the road. You see, this is why I think the road and the, the valley in which the road runs is the sort of zone of contention here. And I think that Arthodyne is extending itself here on the south in order to create a, a larger frontier. So let's go, to, and then that one down there, further down off to the west, south of the road. 
I'm not sure of. That so, one could go either way. Here's the question. Uh, okay. During the time that Aragorn was leading the hobbits uh, in these areas, uh, were these um, fortresses uh, occupied by orcs, or is that just uh, an innovation of the game? That's an innovation of the game. Um, and, the, of course, the, the timing is... Um, so there are two things, right? Two ways in which... Because there are not camps of orcs, of course. I mean, there are many places in the game where we can find large camps of orcs quite near to places where the company traveled, right? Without noticing any huge camps of orcs uh, in the book. Um, and so there are two different mechanisms by which we are... Exp- uh, the game seems to ask us to sort of accept that, right? One is that it asks... Uh, sometimes it does seem to ask us to believe that this was happening and, and the Fellowship just didn't see it, right? Um, that, you know, when they passed through, they just didn't... Inc- There's this other stuff going on. Because they didn't. it's not like they were exploring everywhere, right? Trying to find out what's going on in every part of the map that they're going through. They were keeping to themselves a lot of time, right? They're on the run, in fact. So... You know, something could be, uh, you know, some mischief could be happening in these lands that they were totally unaware of as Strider is trying to mind their own business and keep them coming through here stealthily. So that's one thing that the quest, uh, the quest uh, lines sort of ask us to believe at times. Another is that this is stuff that's happened since the Fellowship came through. We're not really far behind the Fellowship, but we are a little bit behind the Fellowship. Um, and yes. so it's true that we are asked to believe that um, some things have been developing, some 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 stories have been proceeding uh, since then. And in particular, one of these stories uh, seems to be the movement of Saruman's forces. Right? Saruman's increasingly open invasion of the north uh, and trying to establish his power throughout Eriador here um, is one of the bigger picture stories that uh, that, that the game is um, is putting forward and I've always loved that story I think that that's really smart um, and you know in thinking through it that way I, I really do think that they're thinking exactly the kind of way that Saruman would be thinking and, and they're having him do just the kind of thing that I think he would have done um had, you know, Tolkien worked out that part of the story, which he really didn't. So I like that. And I'm totally willing to suspend disbelief to that extent, (laughs) you know, to say that like, well, you know, since the fellowship has gone, things have changed because what they're pretty good at is keeping the overall arc, right? Uh, We know that Saruman is spreading his influence. We know things that happen in the story are indicators that this is on the way. Right. Um, The refugees coming up the Greenway, the sort of dubious refugees who may or may not be refugees. Right. Um, That's those we know many of them to be spies of Saruman. So Saruman is already sending spies. Will there come a time before long when he's going to start sending armed forces? We know that he does that to the Shire. Right. He sends more and more ruffians up to the Shire. That's those are the. The, the ones who are initially hired by Lotro Pimple, but or Lotro Lotho Pimple, um, but then uh, uh, but then who sort of you know uh, uh, take over you know um, in the Shire. So the Saruman's plan to exert his influence in this area is alluded to in the books. 
but it's still subtle when the fellowship goes through. And yet we know when they return that it got a lot less subtle, right? We know that the brigands attacked Bree. We know that they have taken over in the Shire. Uh, and Saruman himself has come to, uh, to take personal command of that. So imagining these intermediary steps between those things, right? And therefore imagining that we as the players, when we come through these areas, are seeing those intermediate steps, are seeing that there have been some orc and half-orc troops uh, who owe allegiance uh, to Saruman who have come into this area um, after Strider and the Hobbits have departed from it. That's something, you know, that's certainly something I'm definitely willing to play along uh, with. And it does do an interesting job of conveying the sense that the book gives us very clearly at the end, right? Which is, it was a near thing, right? The whole North could have been destroyed, but the North has been spared. And of course, you know, part of the fun of the game is being one of the people that helps to spare the North uh, from that. You know, so you say, well, if there are, all, there are all these orc camps up here, why didn't they just, you know, totally sack Breland and, uh, and therefore wouldn't Gandalf and the Hobbits have noticed it when they came back, right? Well, no, because we, the PCs, have thwarted them, right? That's the whole idea, and that's what's... Indeed, we're part of the story. We exactly. are part of the defense of, uh, of Middle-earth. Uh, and that, in my mind, is one of the cleverest elements of their adaptation. You know, the... Um, um, did you not notice a reference to this in the book? Well, that's because, fortunately, the PCs were here to take care of it, right? <laughs> and if we hadn't completed all those quests, then it would have been in the book. You know, then the book would have been different. So um, I think that's really... Uh, I think that's really fun. Uh, I, I really love that element. That whole storyline um, in volume two where Aragorn does call the rangers and yes. we have to make decisions uh, and decide for them whether we want to leave the rangers mm-hmm. in a protected area or are they going to answer the call of their lord and, and go to Helm's Deep. Uh, so that totally makes sense um, that they had to leave people behind to protect and uh, the north is not forsaken by all the rangers so there were still uh, enemies here but there were also uh, allies here who uh, remained behind and uh, protected and did what they could right right exactly exactly no I think that's uh, that is all that is very very clever stuff um, and I, I really love the way that the story works out there um, well, we are running out of time. Um, I should... Well, I was tempted to scamper down and look at one of the ruins, but that would probably be foolish. I think we'll do that next time. So having having gotten an excellent skyward view here tonight uh, of the land and think... So again, I'm going to predict, I think what we're going to find when we go down there is south of the road is going to be Arthodyne and north of the road is going to be Rudour. So we'll see if my prediction comes true. Um, or rather, if my reading of the lands of the ruins in the landscape from the from uh, from the distance here uh, turns out to be accurate or not. Um, okay, so I'm going to sign off here. Thanks everybody for joining me. So glad I could uh, uh, be with you guys here at a Europe-friendly time. I promise I'll try not to make it that long again uh, before the next yeah, time we'll, we do I this. Hopefully, we'll have another one. Soon. Yeah, yeah. Feel free to feel free to remind us to. Uh, uh, to do that. Sometimes <laughs> I get so 
uh, wrapped up in uh, my routine that I forget about it. So, uh, so yeah, we definitely definitely like to to do this every once in a while. Great to see uh, uh, a uh, a fresh set of faces here tonight, uh, and uh, uh, some names that I I know but haven't uh, haven't seen in a while here in the live stream. So. Thanks, everybody, for joining me, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.